our Gate Crash report card and Dragon's Maze review on episode 24 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 24 of So Many Insane Plays, our vintage Dragon's Maze review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, please tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. Kevin, since this is our 24th episode, that means that we've done almost a show a month for the last two years. It's wild. Unfortunately, I really do wish we could do more than once a month. We are lately, but we've had some gaps, too, so we'll have to try and stay up on it. Unfortunately, our Gate Crash review was only three episodes ago, which is, <laughs> which is just mind-boggling to me. Well, there's so much that's been happening at the same time. and We've had the You Make the Card, Restriction Changes, uh, and a new set review. It seems like when it rains, it pours, especially with respect to magic. I think our audience can expect several more shows in the next coming months. Steve, we've got one huge announcement, of course, regrowth being unrestricted, and it comes directly on the heels of our abandoned restricted discussion from the prior episode, so our regular listeners will know our opinion of regrowth, and they'll also note that you and I were somewhat split on the matter. I'm pleased to see it. Obviously, when we did our show, I listed a couple of things I would have done beforehand, but it's pretty clear that R&D didn't exactly study our input, per se, <laughs> when they made their decision. What do you think? Well, I was I was surprised, to say the least. <clears throat> it didn't seem to me like it was the safest unrestriction. I mean, after all, after the exercise we went through in our last podcast, it probably would have been like the fifth or sixth safest restriction in my view. So I, I, was, I was definitely surprised. Wouldn't you say that this is somewhat par for the course for them, though? They've not been afraid to do some risky unrestrictions. Yes and no. Um, you know, some of the unrestrictions that we've had, you know, maybe had more uh, uh, of an influence on in terms of making suggestions. I think, for example, Burning Wish was definitely the safest unrestriction. I think there was pretty much universal agreement on that point. But cards like Unrestricting Gush or Frantic Search did not seem like the safest ones at the time, especially when you had, you know, barely playable cards like Factor Fiction on the on the restricted list at that at that time. Exactly. Well, it's pretty clear that the community has responded. At least the those vocal on Twitter and on the Mandarin have already talked about how they're developing and testing decks. No one has come right out and said this is the end of the world, and this is certainly going to dominate vintage champs or anything like that. Right. But it's certainly on everyone's mind. That's interesting. Um, I think a lot of people are probably skeptical of regrowth because it's for, for a number of reasons. One is that so let's assume it's in a gush deck, which makes a lot of sense. Workshops are really strong at the moment and seem to keep gush decks in check. So it's not clear that regrowth actually improves the workshop matchup, although it might improve the consistency and stability of a gush deck more generally vis-a-vis the field. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, well, I'm not sure that that's true. What you said. Well, which part don't you necessarily agree with? That, that there's a that it's in everyone's mind in terms of how they can break regrowth. I think I think a lot of people are just skeptical. <laughs> well, I guess what I should say is I have seen a lot of evidence of people talking about building and testing. Yeah. So maybe their conclusions I am not fairly summarizing, but it's definitely being discussed and tested. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think there are a number of people who are are testing it, and certainly 
some people who are discussing it, although I don't think the discussion has been as, as interesting or as voluminous as I would have expected. Meaning you would expect people to analyze more the regrowth on restriction? Yeah, I mean, if this was a legacy unbanning, you'd see six pages of discussion in the first hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting point. A lot of that clearly has to do with the popularity and coverage of legacy sadly, compared to vintage. But also, I think it speaks to the fact that regrowth is something of a safe unrestrict. I I feel that that supports the community's impression that this card is not a great risk at this time. You know, I I think my my preliminary testing and analysis suggests the exact opposite. I did some testing with regrowth, and it pretty much confirms my fears for regrowth, which is twofold. And and I mentioned the, the intuition concern of recurring Time walks. I mean, with Snapcaster Mage and Regrowth, the difference between Snapcaster Mage and Yawgmuskle, which Lauer cited in the announcement, is that those exile re- time walk. Whereas you can, with with a deck with four Regrowth and four Snapcaster Mage and time walk, provided you can find the time walk quickly enough with the Intuition or an Imperial Seal or Mystical Tutor or whatever, you can take basically like up to ten turns in a row. You can time. Take your turn, then time walk, then regrowth time walk. Then you can snapcaster mage regrowth on time walk, <laughs> which doesn't ex- none of those exile the time walk. I think, there, and then if you add cards like Eternal Witness, I mean, you're talking about ridiculous quantities of unbounded turns. I think that's extremely dangerous. But I think even more so, the concern I talked about with the Gushbond engine. I've done some testing with Gushbond, and it does pretty much exactly what I expected. That is, once you resolve fast bond and then resolve Gush, you can pretty much beeline from the first Gush to Yawgmoth's will to the win to victory. I mean, it's it's just like the old gush bond engine. Mm-hmm. And my, my fear is that my fear is that if someday workshop Lodestone Golem Workshop is put in check by a restriction such as Lodestone Golem, then Gush is just too good. And I don't want to see Gush restricted again, and I, now I think the Gush Bond engine is too powerful. You, I mean, the Gush Bond engine from 2008 lost Merchant Scroll, Ponder, and Brainstorm, but now you have four regrowth. You have Jace, which is amazing with Gush. We've talked about that in earlier podcasts. And you have four preordain, which pretty much function like Ponder. So the Gush Bond engine is just as dense and efficient and consistent and reliable as it was in 2007, 2008. In some ways it's better, in some ways it's worse. Worse. It's better because regrowth is more versatile. Jace is very powerful. You can gush Jace naturally, but it's worse in the sense that Merchant Scroll is just the best card and Brainstorm is the best mana fixer, so it's weaker against shops, but it's very, very dangerous what they've done. Just goes to show how complex these systems are. We might have a, a short list of things that we could unrestrict right now. Library, maybe balance, maybe some other things like gifts. But it could all be undone or it could all be thrown for a loop if something happens to workshops. And workshops are, yeah. even with a subtle change to that archetype, like a restriction of Golem or Chalice, could yes. push it out of the limelight and put all the emphasis back on blue-based draw engines, like you've said, and have just untold consequences. Exactly. And I just think it was a mistake. I think the banner restricted list was almost perfect. I think I think it was, if not a mistake, a very high-risk move. And we'll see what the consequences are. I mean, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I just think the risks of both of those things, those unbounded time walks, it doesn't take much to take a, you know, it doesn't take much to win if you can take three time walks in a row. You know, and, and, and time walk... Snapcaster Mage, Regrowth Time Walk, Snapcaster Mage, Regrowth Time Walk is very feasible. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can do things like intuition for Ancestral Time Walk, Regrowth. <laughs> you know, and if you have a Snapcaster Mage or, and or Regrowth in hand, <laughs> what, what then? <laughs> and, and it's not as if you can just, like, tar- you know, have a, uh, a Tormod script to take out one of them, because it's not, it's, the problem isn't one card. It's not just Time Walk, right? I mean, you could do the exact same thing with Ancestral. Mm-hmm. A very good point. All the way around, and I think such decks will be tested. People 
people will try to rebuild the gush decks as storm decks to start with. People will try to build intuition based, heavily blue green decks that have the capability to make the plays you just described. But we need some time to tell whether or not those decks have a disproportionate power in the metagame, and we need some time right. for people to adjust as well. Yeah, they may well be kept in check by workshops, but that's not that's not saying much. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not as healthy. That makes it makes gush to the gush bond engine too good. Interesting. Well, we'll see. What other announcements do you have, Steve? Um, well, I should just mention that I'm I'm also writing a, a Dragon's Maze set review, so people should check that out. I didn't write Gatecrash because I thought we would be able to cover everything in our podcast, but it turns out that the mediums are very different. So for folks who want to read the article and see deck lists, I talk about the unrestriction of regrowth and the Gush Bond engine in my set review, so be sure to check that out. It'll be published this week. Also of note is this show will soon be hosted on EternalCentral.com in addition to the MTG Cast Network so that we get extra maximal exposure. And so for those of you who may go to Eternal Central more frequently, say, than MTG Cast or an RSS feed from it, then you may see the show there sooner, perhaps. And for people who are looking for other ways to access the show, on not just iTunes, but Apple TV. So if you're at home, you know, doing something like eating dinner, just put on Apple TV. You'll find our podcast and the Serious Vintage podcast, and you can listen to them uh, that way through iTunes. It's great, actually. Awesome. But you, in fact, in fact, I, I do it when I play Magic. I'll listen to the podcast while I'm testing. That's awesome. So, Steve, we don't normally do a whole lot of listener feedback in our show, at least not of late, but we've got lots of feedback born out of our banner restricted discussion. That's always a lively topic for debate. You have some things you wanted to speak to directly in response to last time, last week's episode, yes? Well, I'll put a, a, a dual cap on as both a listener and a participant. I listened to the, the podcast and I had some feedback. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> well, I want to hear it. That's the only it way. Will... It's the only way I can get better, Steve. <laughs> Well, one question I had for you is you made a very interesting remark that I didn't fully process about you're not fond of formats in which Leyline of Sanctity is I don't salient. I don't know how else to put it. Could you elaborate or clarify what you meant by that? I think it speaks to two things. One is it speaks to coin flippiness. As you have said in the past, you, that's really a negative feature of a format if it becomes too coin flippy looking at your opening hand saying this can win, this will win, this can't win based on just what's in it. And also the inverse being, if my opponent has this, I lose. If my opponent doesn't, I win, that kind of thing. I think that Leyline of Sanctity is a representative of formats like that. But it's more than that. You could say, well, there's ways to deal with Leyline of Sanctity, and yes, that much is clear. So it's not just necessarily an I win or I lose kind of thing. The problem with it after you get past that first point is that it tends to be as soon as Leyline of Sanctity leaves play, then they win. <laughs> so whatever strategy you're trying to fight with the ley line, if you don't have it, sometimes you just lose because you don't have it. If you do have it, then it's just a fight to get rid of it, and then they win, that kind of thing. What underlies your analysis of that? Because I don't, I don't see it. Well, my experience with using it, so we used it, for example, in Workshop Aggro a couple of years back as a sideboard card against a couple of different strategies. Oath in particular. Oath in particular. And in some of those cases, it was simply the only answer we had. So that, yes. it represents the kind of thing I think is a negative. If we got it in play, Oath couldn't work. As soon as they removed it, Oath worked and we lost, that kind of thing. And I just think that anytime you're using Leyline of Sanctity, it, it tends to that kind of scenario. It is your answer to something. If you have it, they are completely out of luck. It stymies whole strategies, whole decks. And 
if they have an answer to it, then it generally means they also get to win. So it just contributes to coin flippiness at two different levels of the game. I mean, we definitely emphasize this this issue of, of coin flippiness. In fact, we maybe didn't even draw on it upon it enough because because my main concern with workshops was not really that Lodestone Golem is too oppressive in some sense, but it's that right now workshop decks are too coin flipping. If they win the die roll, their their win percentage is, is just enormous. Um, and if they don't win the die roll, well, it's much less so, but winning the die roll gives them too much of a, a, an advantage in the match. That's my main concern with workshops, and that's, I think both Chalice, Chalice perhaps does that more than Golem, but Golem certainly contributes to that. But the thing, though, I'm just not persuaded about your point that Leyline of the Sanctity is a coin flip card, or even a good example of a coin flip card. I mean, if just looking at the Leyline pool, isn't Leyline of the Void a better example of that? You have it, it hoses, you said, hoses keep strategies, right? It's something you have or you don't. No. Isn't that a better example of that sort of concern? Because to me, and just to elaborate, Leyline Sanctity is much more of a grindy card. I view it as like an anti-oath card, not a, not a, a coin flippy card. Well, to answer both of your points, I would say that Leyline of the Void also does represent Present that, but at the same time, Leyline of the Void is not brought in against necessarily strategies that are seeking to win the game immediately. For example, against Dredge, it could be seen as kind of flippy, meaning you put it into play and they can't win, and then if they deal with it, they suddenly are usually in a position to win very quickly thereafter. So, in that sense, I think it does represent my point as well. But Ult doesn't win immediately. You have to dread. You have to actually activate it. And then, you well, know... But it, wouldn't you consider that to be basically the following turn? You, yeah, you, I think that's analogous to Dredge then, because Dredge plays bizarre and then it can win on turn two. Yeah, well, and I, can, I consider that to be coin flippy. It's not turn one, but the point is, is their victory is immediately proximate to removing this card. I just, I just don't, I just don't see it. I guess I, I'm definitely not persuaded. That's a good example of a coin flippy card. I mean, of all the cards in, in Vintage that could have that label, I think Leyline is way down the list. And I was intrigued by that because it made me think of something else I forgot to mention, which is that we had a really nice discussion on gifts. Leyline of Sanctity is another card that hoses gifts, gifts, because both gifts and intuition target players. So you can't actually cast gifts ungiven if your opponent has the Sanctity, mm-hmm. which I think is a fascinating point. I mean, all the cards that, that, that target opponents, Oath of Druids, Tendrils of Agony, Gifts Ungiven, Intuition, even Forbidden Orchard, you can't generate tokens, you know, with, with Leyline in play. Leyline is, I think, a really good example of a very good vintage card, not a coin flippy card, but a card that hits, has utility against a range, tactical utility against a range of ta- important tactics and strategies. Reminds me a lot more of Graph Digger's Cage, not a coin flip card. It has that possibility. You're completely right. It is never used for that purpose. When's the last time you saw someone have Leyline on their sideboard for that kind of value? For that kind of, oh, you can't duress me, or you can't cast gifts. No one no one uses it for that. It is so far limited to strategies that are uses that entirely shut down specific strategies, and usually because they can't be fought in any other means. I think that that may be right to some extent, but that's <laughs> true because gifts is restricted. If Gifts was unrestricted, Leyline of Sanctity would be much better. I'll give you an example. So when I was playing against Anthony Michaels in the finals of the of the Team Series Open, I beat him. In Game 2, he brought in Leyline of Sanctity against to shut down my Oath, and my, and which he did. But it wasn't just Oath. It wasn't even Oath that was most important. It stopped Herkel's recall. And that was perhaps the most important thing. Um, and so, I I mean, I, I hear you, but I just don't think it's the coin flippy card. I think that we may be also dealing with different definitions of coin flippy. The... The version that you refer to with regard to workshops has a lot to do with the actual 
decision of playing first in a game vis-a-vis win percentage, which is a perfectly good operational definition. I am referring to more along the lines of that card, Laydown of Sanctity, and its uses being symbolic of the definition of a game. Meaning, if I have the ley line, they can't beat it, which is frequently the case in the ways that it's applied. And as soon as they do deal with the ley line, then they win. So the whole game focuses around that card. If you've got it, you get to live until you don't have it. That can be true. That's not. But my point is that if that's true of Leyline Sanctity, that's true of many more cards that would not be described as coin fluffy, like Grafdigger's Cage or Leyline. The difference with Grafdigger's Cage, though, is that it has and is used for all of the other different value uses that you described. It it hurts many decks for lots of reasons. People include it as a one of in yeah. some things. It gets here, it gets there. Leyline of Sanctity has never been used that way. It is only used yeah. to symbolize a, a tactic that I can't deal with in any other way than to this free uncounterable card on turn zero you know i i i think that that's that's uh not necessarily true i think that leyline of sanctity has has seen a lot of play across archetypes it's been used in dredge sideboards workshop sideboards and if gifts were unrestricted it would see a lot more play even then so i i think that it's not it's in fact a lot like rap digger's cage in that respect it'd be it'd be used by a range of strategies to do a number of different things not one thing i just wanted to better understand your point there there was something else that was interesting in the podcast and we were talking about balance. I don't think we were quite explicit on this, but the home for balance is five color stacks. You said, well, that's not a deck. And I remember I actually played the against a five color stacks deck, a guy named Lotus Head in the Vacaville. I lost round one, very, very close round one. It was my first match loss with Burning Tendrils in 14 consecutive, 15 consecutive matches. And he had, he blew me out one game with Stony Silence. And he was, he actually won the workshop mirror because of Welders. I think it would be really interesting to see what balance could do. And I think it would definitely definitely be a viable deck. What do you think? I simply do not think it's going to be very good. I think that's where the home is. I mean, an obvious first home. But I just think that deck is so much of a gambit in today's environment. Yes, it's possible to build it and play it today. And it's but it's not it's not that good. And the presence of balance doesn't help you in ways that you need it to in my opinion is the other problem. Well, I'm not saying that the, the five color stack stack would be that would be metagame dominant. I'm asking you whether it would be viable. I think the answer is yes. I think it would be viable about as much as it is right now, which is to say very little. I disagree. I think that it would be. I think five color stacks would get a tremendous boost, and then you'd have actually a, a, a viable workshop alternative. Yeah, I also think five five color stacks could play with Mox Opal. At least one, maybe two. Agreed. It definitely would. I mean, the deck. I think that would be exciting. That's a reason to unrestrict it, though. Well, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say other than, yeah, that is a reason to unrestrict it. it, it are you concerned that five-color stacks would be... Okay, let me put that another way. You're definitely not concerned that five-color stacks would be a problem, right? Not not if, not if Lodestone Golem is legal. Right. Lodestone Golem is legal. It's, it, it, I think you'd have a really competing archetypes. Yeah. If Lodestone Golem is restricted, I think five-color stacks might be might be too good. I don't know. It's hard to say. That is, that's pretty hard to say since that's a, a multifaceted result. Yeah, yeah, it'd be very difficult to evaluate. But one thing I think is definitely worth mentioning, which is that as I listened to the podcast, we had some explicit criteria, but we weren't, we didn't consistently apply that criteria, and there was implicit criteria that we didn't make explicit. I thought it would be good just to clarify that. First, we talked about metagame dominance, like a you know a deck that dominates top eights. Second, we talked about decks that are have a consistent turn one win or turn one lock you out as being unfun. But the the third thing that really, that was implicit, especially in the thirst discussion, and something you repeatedly said, Kevin, is that that if if the deck tactic like thirst or other decks creates a um, 
um, what was the word you used, but like basically um, forces out other tactics. You know, so you, you talked about, you know, blue draw engines. Thirst would sort of suck up air out of the room for other blue draw engines. Right. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, consolidation. Yeah, basically consolidation. And I think I think we should have made that that explicit because that's a really important point. And it's actually design. It's a design point as well. One of the things that we've seen over time is that, especially for example, around the diversity of blue counter magic, which is that in the last couple of years we've seen the printing of cards like Flusterstorm, Spell Pierce, Mental Misstep, Mindbreak Trap, etc. Whereas control decks used to just have a very few good counter spells like Mana Drain, Force, and Misdirection. And the diversity means that from deck to deck. Context to context, metagame to metagame, certain counterspells are situationally better. And I think from a design perspective and a, and a policy perspective, wizards should be attentive to figuring out how they can maximize the number of interesting variants. Because the more variants you have, you have cost-benefit choices at the margin. And if, if you can do that, you can actually increase the vintage card pool. You see what I'm saying there? Interesting. That's a... That's a pretty dense tertiary result, but I agree. If you can have an environment like we have now compared to the 2008 environment in terms of blue draw engines, this is definitely preferable. Right. So in other words, let's just say like the natural vintage card pool is 300 to 400 cards. If, if Wizards focuses on making variants of good cards that are close variants, like Flusterstorm being a Spell Pierce variant, et cetera, et cetera, you can actually increase the card pool without pushing cards out. So, you know, just, I think a really good example of this is Tinker Bot targets before Blightsteel Colossus. Mm-hmm. Before Blightsteel Colossus, there were like four legitimate Tinker Bots that depended, that were better depending on your metagame, depending on the deck, and depending upon, you know, other factors. So you had things like Sphinx of the Steel Wind, you had things like, uh, um, Inkwell. Inkwell, Inkwell, Leviathan, yeah, help me out. There were others, uh, the Mirror Battlesphere. Yep, Platinum Angel even. None of them were strictly superior to the other until Blightsteel was printed. So Blightsteel is the perfect example of a bad card because <laughs> it reduces the, it, in the sense that it does what you, what you described vis-a-vis Thirst, right? Which is consolidates playable cards, collapses in a sense, design space or playable card space into one or a few cards. And, and there are certain, you can look at unrestrictions, I think, the same way. You know, it's interesting. Blightsteel is a fascinating example for a number of reasons. And one of them is that not only did it do what you described, but it has resisted any counter strategies despite the fact that it is the primary and best card. Meaning we've we've been in this situation for years now, despite the fact that Blightsteel Colossus is obviously the thing that everyone's going to play and everyone is obviously preparing for it, it is still the best thing to play. Exactly. Which even reinforces exactly. the problem. Yes. There simply isn't but- something better despite the fact that everyone is prepared for Blightsteel Colossus. I think we should have made this consolidation criteria explicit because it's so good, so important. It's also consistent with this, this frame of, of meaningful choice, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's it. You're removing all the choice. And I think the same thing would happen with Thirst. Right. Despite the fact that everyone knows Thirst is best and everyone's preparing for it, it would still be the best. Right. It's not. I mean, certainly a best deck removes meaningful choice in terms of deck choice, but a best tactic or a best engine does the same thing. That's my concern with regrowth and gush, is that it boosts the gush bond engine so much that you consolidate engines so that others become less viable because they have less marginal utility. At the same time, we're going to have to see things how things play out. Other cards get better, say Mystic Remora. Snapcaster gets better. Yep. yep. One other thing that was interesting is we talked about possible restrictions, but we didn't mention Bazaar, and people, a number of people did. What, what do you think about that? I think that that goes along with other mentions that we maybe should have touched on, and that is Workshop. So and the same answer, I think, is for both, which is 
while these cards are clearly driving forces in their respective decks, Bizarre and Workshop, you don't want to eliminate archetypes. You, it, the, goal, right. the goal of such a restriction that we discussed is not to just eliminate this from the metagame so it stops being there. The, the goal is to reduce its oppressiveness. You can't restrict Bizarre because that deck just disappears. And the same thing goes with Workshop. I don't think that's true. I don't. Th- I do think that's true of Workshop. I don't think that's true of Bizarre because you could play with four crop rotation, things like that, and still use Bizarre. That said, that said, I don't think restricting Bizarre is necessary. So I'm opposed to it on that grounds as well. Well, that's an interesting point about using crop rotation. It is certainly feasible to do that. So it's it's argu- it's arguable how effective the deck would still be if you tried that. And we don't really want to get into that. You can do things like Breakthrough. Breakthrough was very popular in certain <laughs> regions. That, that's true. There are a lot of ways you can address the issue legacy dredge exists sans bizarre of course and it's certainly a a possibility but i think you and i are saying the same thing though the goal is not to have such a removal of a deck from a metagame but so much to just stop it from being so oppressive yeah so one one last thing that that comes out of our listener feedback kevin different topic which is discussion of library you know as i was listening to the podcast i kind of got the sense it was like a milgram psychology experiment that (laughs) the more i listened to you the more i was persuaded for by you not necessarily not necessarily because i agree with all of your reasoning but because i don't know maybe there's some sort of conformist effect (laughs) in our (laughs) podcast well that could be but with library here's something that someone said in the mandarin someone said quote Library is not safe to come off the ban list. They meant the restricted list. Conti- they continue. Every blue deck would instantly have four in it, either main deck or sideboard, or instantly lose to any deck that did. It's pretty absurd when you start stacking triggers of LOAs. People have almost never experienced it before and thus don't appreciate how absurd it is. Even one LOA is almost a death knell in the blue mirror now. Imagine multiples. By diluting the blue decks, it would just empower shops and dredge. What do you have to say to that? That is a fascinating grouping of observations. One... Everyone would play with four, and whoever drew more would win their game, is the assumption. But then he ends with, by diluting the blue decks, it would just empower shops and dredge, which is in direct contradiction to, I guess, the perceived problem. So you're saying library is too good, therefore shops and dredge would become better? I I can't even reconcile that. To me that sounds <laughs> that seem to me that sounds like he just argued in favor of it being a balanced thing unless unless he's trying to say that everything becomes more coin flippy, meaning in order to beat yeah. the blue decks you have to just draw all your libraries in order to beat anything else you want to draw no libraries. Maybe that's I what he's that- trying to observe. Do you agree with that or disagree with that? I don't even know what I'm agreeing with. It sounds like he's saying so you can't do this because it would make shops and dredge too good. What, let's start with the statement where he says every blue deck would instantly have to have four, either main deck or sideboard. I, do you agree with that? No, you and I both expressed our opinion on that. It doesn't seem like it's right. It it We already have issues in blue decks like Landstill with colorless lands. Yeah. I don't think there's any way that four is the right number. So, so I mean, there's the three main blue decks. It seems to me are Grixis Control, Landstill, and Bomberman. You agree? Three main blue decks: Grixis Control, Landstill, and Bomberman. Yes, in the in that those are the decks that would consider playing Library, I believe. Right, and how, I think Landstill would probably play four main deck or sideboard. Bomberman less, and Grixis Control maybe two or three main deck or side. Agree. That's true. So, do you think that? Do you agree with him that LOA is the death knell in the blue mirror right now? Not at all. Yeah, I don't agree either. It, I think that if you're in a metagame where there's a heavy control, like Landstill Mirrors, it probably it could be. Although Landstill plays four Wastelands, right? Well, more <laughs> than four Wastelands, actually, functionally. 
Right. So maybe one way of looking at it, if I'm giving a favorable reading, is that he's concerned that there's this arms race among blue blue decks, where blue decks will have to run a bunch of libraries, which weakens them, which cuts out other cards and makes them weaker against chops and dredge. Is that how one? Is that a favor, uh, Is that a sensible way of interpreting his, his his argument? Yes. Taken in whole, I think that's the only logical summation: is that the arms race would hurt the blue decks in their non-blue matchups and create. I guess what he's summarizing would be some kind of negative imbalance. What, what's your view on that? Do you think that makes sense as an argument? <sighs> to me, it smacks of the sort of envir- the sort of thing that he and maybe many other players just don't want to happen. <laughs> but honestly, it reads to me like a healthy situation. This is how magic works. If a blue deck has right. something that's very good against other blue decks, like, say, Jace or Flusterstorm or Dark Confidant, you want to play more of those things. But some of those cards, like Flusterstorm, for example, make you much worse than other matchups, and so it's a natural balance. To that point, the next response to him was was someone who said, so, this is a different person, so Library would play a similar role to that of Flusterstorm currently, which gives you a leg up in the mirror, but is pretty terrible versus the rest of the field. Without With Library unrestricted, blue mages would have to choose between metagaming for the mirror at the cost of extremely weakening their mana base, Stephen and Kevin discussed this well in the podcast, or metagaming for other archetypes instead. I don't see a problem with that, and I certainly don't buy the four library would become auto-include. Then then uh, the original poster responded again with this. No, library is good elsewhere. It just absurdly dominates the blue matchup more than other things. Imagine a pitch counter-based deck based on library, standstill, and other CA card style cards. It just wouldn't be interesting at all. People complain about blue-red-green landstill. Imagine a list that is even more potent, leaning on card advantage as a crutch. If they think library is a mana-based problem, then they are simply incorrect. Colorless mana, colored, colorless mana isn't an issue when your counters don't cost mana. What do you think about that? There aren't enough pitch counters to actually make that archetype work. As soon as you get past the four force of wills and some misdirections, it becomes that th- there's a dramatic drop off in the quality of. Landstill decks already play like more mindbreak trap than misdirection right now, which is not the kind of card that interacts with library significantly. I mean, yes, it is relevant when mindbreak trap is quote unquote free, but that's also but, not reliable. Well, well, let's just assume the landstill deck has like two to three mental misstep, one to two. Mindbreak trap, one misdirection, and four force. That's a lot of pitch magic. It is. It is, and and even in that configuration, still doesn't just dominate. Say the matchup against Grixis Control. You fan open a hand that has misdirection, mindbreak trap, mental misstep times two, and li- and double library, and your opponent goes land Lotus Jace, <laughs> and you go draw a card in response. Ooh, look, it's a blue card that I could use to not counter your Jace. The same goes for say Dark Confidant. <laughs> A simple thing, a simple thing like a Dark Confidant. You fan open your library and all of your pitch counters, and they go Landmox Dark Confidant, and you say, yep, it's good. <laughs> the, the simple fact is there's not enough Force of Wills. All these effects are relevant, and yes, they will dominate certain situations, but this is not a, a catch-all answer. You add Daze and Thwart and Foil to the mix, there just aren't enough pitch counters to make a deck just be able to consistently dominate an opponent, even a blue opponent. Well, I'm, I don't think he's saying that you would go with those cards, but I, but there are a lot. Well, wait, of pitch counters hold on a sec. Hold on a sec. What other cards could he be referring to? 
Well, I think Mental Misstep, Force of Will, and Mind Break Trap and Misdirection are enough. Well, there I don't agree. Those cards are not consistently good enough to dominate opponents. It's not like those cards aren't making dominance right now just because you can't draw enough cards. If that were true, you'd be making a blue-based deck that was just filled with nothing but gushes and, and I don't know, you'd, you'd maximize Standstill, Gush, Mystic Remora, Jace, and just say, I counter all your spells. That's not a viable strategy. And the presence of Library doesn't suddenly push you over the edge of all of a sudden having five more cards than your opponent every turn. Let's not forget that tap Library to draw a card, pitch that card to Force a Will is, is card neutral. You yes. didn't gain anything so, by that. I mean, yes, you countered their spell, but it's not like you gained ground on them. It's just a tempo play. Now, ment- Mental Misstep and Mind Break Trap, those cards are card advantageous. If you just tap library to draw a card to counter their spell, yes, you got ahead. But misdirection and force aren't. You- well, let's not let's not downplay. Landstill has done very well. Landstill has performed very well, and it's done so on the back of a lot of these free cards. Yes, but the summation here is that it would suddenly be able to defeat everything. Yeah, I don't I don't agree with that either. And- I think there's a number of ways of looking at it. I just wanted to, I wanted to press you in the, so the nitty gritty of how you think those those particular pitch counters interact tactically. Although I think that's useful. I mean, I think your point about dark confidant is very well taken. But I think that the the other ways of looking at this is first, I think the middle the person who responded in the first instance is correct. Library would play a role similar to Fluster's Arm. I think it's very, very similar. It's that blue arms race, right? Naturally. Where you want more Fluster's I think that's the correct analysis. But I think that's a, that's a good thing, right? That players have to position themselves in a metagame, and they have to make cost-benefit decisions with every inclusion or exclusion. Definitely. And so And so making that more stark is a good thing. The second thing, though, is I agree with that person that he doesn't think LaFour Library would become auto-include across all blue decks. I don't agree with that either. You don't agree with that. The third thing is let's assume that it does. Let's assume not in all blue decks, but let's say that four library becomes auto included landstill, and maybe you know four main deck and sideboard in bomberman. Is that such a, such a bad thing? Is it? What is your view if library has if landstill can forty percent of the time have terminal library? What would you think of that? I think it's something you can adapt to. I think you a bomberman deck, for example, or say Grixis control can adapt by having more early threats that prey on the fact that their opponent can't as reliably counterspell. The simple fact is is that if if you play a library on turn one, you have fewer counterspell options for certain cards than you do if you just play an island. So you're actually less of a control threat, in my estimation, on turn one for certain cards, like the Dark Confidant we mentioned. Now, there are other cards that you're much better against, let's say Ancestral Recall, because more of the counters we've been describing come online and are good against Ancestral. But I think that's just something you adapt to. If this kind of landstill configuration becomes the norm, then your other blue-playing opponents will become smarter. You won't just run out Island Ancestral on turn one like you might today. I think that's exactly right. I think that the decks can adapt to a full library environment fairly easily, in fact. I think, you know, there's enough tools right now. I mean, how good is a pitch magic if you go Cavern of Soul Threat, right? (laughs) Well, another great example... I mean, or, you know, the thing is, you can't just, the, the thing I was trying, the point I was trying to make in the library discussion or our last podcast is that the, the library has its own structural limitations and that you can't just play a deck that's purely card advantage in the format. The format is too fast. If there may be, and this is the point I was getting at earlier, is there may be metagames where very, very slow control decks do dominate local metagames. That's not the rule in this format. Tempo decks dominate legacy. In a developed vintage metagame, slow style control decks are, cannot dominate for very long. This 
format is too fast, too tempo-oriented for that to happen for more than a very marginal period of time. And if that does happen, even if that does happen, what's really so bad about for, for library Landstill? I mean, Landstill has Wasteland, so it can combat other libraries. It's better against library than Bomberman. And, and wouldn't that be a selling point for the format? Look, the best deck in the format is Landstill. Wouldn't that go across against some of the stereotypes in this format? What are your thoughts on those comments? I think that that's a double-edged sword. I think there's definitely some benefit to the format having a high-profile deck that has long games to counteract stereotypes. I definitely think it does. I also think, however, that there are lots of people who would consider playing against Landstill to be a bad thing, meaning a bad magical experience. So yes and no. Honestly, for myself, I don't care. I like playing with and against Landstill. I think it's perfectly viable, meaning I think it makes for good magic. It is a good component of our metagame. And so at face value, I would say sure. Anything that counteracts stereotypes about vintage speed is, I think, patently good. Now, what the result is, it still might not bring many more players to the format. So the net result might not be positive, but I'm, I am willing to put up with that. That's why library is at the top of my list. Yeah, I think on balance, you're right. I don't, I mean, I think that there are just too many ways. There are too many fast, powerful tactics in the format for library to, to dominate. If you just sit there and just draw cards with library all day, it's not, I just think that the metagame would adopt, adapt to that pretty, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You'd have like Delver decks, things like that popping up everywhere. I mean, there are fish decks that would win, goblins maybe, even things like that. And let's also not forget that there are certain strategies that actually prey on library card disadvantage strategies. We haven't seen him to Turok in any great quantity in Vintage for a while, but that kind of thing becomes more relevant. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, simple fact is, is there are more Wasteland effects than there are libraries, than there ever will be libraries. Yes, those yes. quarter, et cetera. Yeah, there are three to four times as many that we have at, at our disposal on turn one that are uncounterable. And so maybe you'll draw your card off your library. Maybe that'll put you ahead. But honestly, you can't grind out an opponent with your four libraries when they have 12 wastelands. <laughs> it's right. just not going to work that way. I'm all for it. The more I think about it, the more exciting I think it becomes. But the format, but the, the real threat from Blue Decks isn't library. It's Tinker and Time Vault and Yawgmoss, not library. But Well, and also we're, I think, guilty of consolidating Blue as a monolithic thing and vintage a little too hastily in our various podcasts and analyses. The decks that would run for library obviously are not the same decks that would run all of those cards you just listed. And so, again, just reinforcing the differentiation, the different strategies, I think, can only be a good thing. The last thing I wanted to mention about libraries, people thought the, the cost of the card would go up like $400. Did you see that? Did you see that? No, I don't think I saw the comments you're referring to specifically. I saw some other people agreeing that its price would definitely spike. The same people would be concerned about that, it seems like. Yeah, I think that's a little overblown, though. I mean, honestly, the it's just a drop in the bucket when it comes to vintage. I said this on our last show. And ironically, in the decks that it would go into, those decks are already missing various moxen to begin with. So I don't consider a five or $600 library to really be a reason to not make the decision even though that is a negative for some players. Yep. All right. Well, let's, let's, uh, do you have any other feedback you want to address? No, thanks for bringing up those questions. I think it's time we moved on to our gate crash report card. Let's do it. Let's see how we did. I'm nervous. Steve, I've got our list of 
how we rated Gate Crash card by card from our previous set review, and I've got the actuals to see how we did. Now, you haven't heard these results, so just for our listeners' benefit, Steve is currently unaware of how this whole thing played out, so I'm going to roll it out for him. First up, the combination of Balustrade Spy and Undercity Informer. Now, again, we're going by our predicted number of top eight appearances and the actual top eight appearances as reflected in Morphling.D's results. Steve, you predicted three appearances. I predicted one appearance. The actual result was one. (laughs) A a single top eight. So I'm the winner for Balustrade Spy under City Informer. But the simple fact is, is we were both very close. We had the... I believe the... Oh, I was just going to say, we had the the general quantity pretty spot on. I think that the one that actually top eight was my list. And now that I've done a lot more work on the archetype, I'm pretty sure that that deck needs four Living Wish. So it may require further iteration, but I wasn't terribly far off on that. No, I said non-zero. Not at all. We'll see how it plays out over time, of course. Yeah. Next up, we don't need to belabor the issue too much. Bio-Visionary, we both predicted zero, and the actual result was zero. So no surprise there. The next one is interesting, though. Blind Obedience. You and I both predicted zero, giving the card not too much respect, especially when compared to things like Root Maze. Reminded me, remind me what that card is. Artifacts and creatures your opponents control enter the battlefield tapped, and it has Extort. So we were definitely minimizing the Extort aspect, but comparing it to things like Root Maze, which don't see any play these days, there was one appearance of a Blind Obedience, one copy now in a main deck of, interestingly enough, it, it appeared in a blue-white aggro deck featuring Elite Vanguard and Savannah Lions, Relic Warder, Isamaru, Sarah Avenger, Four Student well, that of makes that makes sense because that deck would not have access to Root Maze, so it's understandable why they would use this effect instead of Root Maze. Except a single copy seems strange. strange. Seems a little strange. Obviously, that is something of an aberrant archetype. We'll see if Blind Obedience makes any subsequent appearances, but I think you and I would both be pretty comfortable saying that's probably going to be the only one. Yeah. But it goes down as a tie. You and I both missed it by one. All right. <laughs> Next up is a fun one, Demir Charm. We talked about at length in terms of its various modes, and I think what we've learned from this example is that maybe the sum is greater than, or the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. We both predicted zero. The actual appearances were three. What? Yeah, we're pretty far off. Now, uh, Mike Noble has been playing the card, a couple copies in the sideboard of Doomsday. Oh, my Doomsday deck. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) But And he's been pretty complimentary, I think, about its function in that deck, having lots of versatility. So he's definitely trading on the versatility there. And then I'm trying to find in the results. So two out of the three were Mike Noble. And the third was uh, Daniel Prolox playing a deck called the Blue Danube Waltz, which is a blue-black Tezzeret Agent of Bolas Baleful Strix control deck. He had one copy in the sideboard. So Demir Charm in Doomsday is a little bit like, I don't know, Predict or something? <laughs> sure. It is an alternate way to execute the combo in the endgame while also having a little bit of value for, say, removal. I'm a skeptic. Well, we'll see. We'll see if it plays out and becomes a staple over time or not. There's a little bit of, and with many of these cards, there's a little bit of players just experimenting, basically, and, sure. and having a little sure. bit of success. Obviously, two copies in a Doomsday sideboard speaks to one type of use, but we'll see if that becomes a standard. Yeah. Next up, Domri Raid. Again, doesn't require much discussion. We both predicted zero, and that was the result. So that was one that we both got right. 
Moving on, Enter the Infinite. Very interesting discussion we had on that one. You predicted one, I predicted zero, and the actual was zero. <laughs> Goes down as a quote-unquote win for me, but it's it's pretty clear that that one, I think, could have gone either way. Someone could have done like Mike did for Demir Charm and, and tested it out and maybe even made a top eight. We'll see. One omniscience deck with it. it exactly, exactly. Could still show up in the future. Next up is one that I genuinely thought you were out in left field on, and that's Hellkite Tyrant. (laughs) You predicted two, I predicted zero, and the result was zero. I really don't think we're ever going to see this one show up. I just thought it might be a sideboard card for some Oath players. Oath is so popular, people are willing to try a lot of weird stuff. True, true that. So that one goes down as a win for me. Next up, Realm Rite, zeros across the board. No reason to belabor that one. Same thing for Foundry Street Denizen. We just discussed it as a theoretical matter more than anything, I think. But I really think we should touch on Night Veil Spectre. That one we both predicted zero, and we had kind of a lively conversation about how good it really could be. You were very harsh on this card, and I was defending it. I, I, that's fair. I was definitely very harsh, and I think I continue to be. But the actual appearances was one. There was a single top eight made by Night Vale Spectre, and I think that if my remembering from Twitter from about two weeks ago is, is fair, there was actually, I think, a small group of guys up in the Northeast that brought a bug fish-type deck with Night Vale Spectres in it to one or more events. The single top eight here might belie a handful of people testing the deck. I'm, I really am not certain yeah. Well, it's interesting. In our discussion, I remember saying that, you know, this is like Demir Cuppers, which you said, well, that card hasn't seen play in a while. It's actually appeared a lot in the last couple of months. So Bugfish, because of Abrupt Decay and Death Rite Shaman, has made a comeback. And Demir Cuppers and Night Vale Spectre, I think we expect to see some more. But you, you, I mean, I would encourage our listeners to go back. I didn't win this round, but I'll call it a moral victory. <laughs> I, was, I was definitely defending this card against your rather strident criticism. Well, I... I can support you on that one. I think this is a moral victory on your part. The numbers, you were definitely more in favor of it than I was. But at the same time, you still weren't willing to put your money where your mouth was and and say a non-zero number, (laughs) (laughs) which you've called me on in the past. So I feel comfortable calling you on. Anyway, Night Vale Spectre, a little bit of a surprise. We'll see how it bears out in the long run. I reached out to Mark Hornung and and Ryan Glacken for some thoughts on the the issue, but uh, I haven't heard back from them yet. Next up is Shattering Blow, where we both predicted zero, and we pretty clearly compared this card to other options and said it just wasn't necessary. The actual is surprising. Four appearances by Shattering Blow, and most of these were in the sideboard. Uh, in fact, yeah, of the, let's see, one, two, three, four, five copies, three of them were in sideboards, two others in the main. So it looks like, again, people experimenting with alternative flexible removal cards. What kind of decks were they in? Let's see. One of the main deck appearances was in a pretty highly unusual blue-white standstill deck that featured such notables as four Geist of St. Traft <laughs> and one Elspeth Knight Errant. So, again, that's pretty anomalous. That's a very unusual deck. At least it's a very unusual build of, of Landstill. And let's see. Well, it looks like the other appearance was the same player with the same deck. So we've got one person represented in two top eights with an unusual Geist of St. Traff Landstill deck. So is this, is this for us like an abrupt decay over omission, or is it more like a Eric Butler's playing Hannah's Custody in the four turns? <laughs> I'll tell you, the other sideboard appearance that I just found, the main deck of that deck had two gutter snipe in it. So read into that what you will. That was a five-color control 
deck played by one John Knight in Columbus, Wizard Sniping <laughs> called it. And John is known for playing some unusual card choices in otherwise controlling decks. Yes. So honestly, I think this is players testing out stuff, and we admitted when we talked about it that this card has a relevant effect, just yeah. not good enough to justify it over other things. Well, I think four, four appearances is enough to, to to say to conclude that it's playable. I think it's playable. This is a card that I would say is playable, but maybe wouldn't see play. And I, I actually felt similarly about Nightfield Spectre, marginally playable, but I wouldn't predict to have seen a top eight. You know, but I, I think I think we can give this one the. It's not abrupt decay, but it's it's playable. Yeah. Agreed. And it may see play in the future as as people test it out in different configurations or in different roles. Well, I'm very anxious to find out the results of the next two. Yeah, this is some interesting stuff here. So, Thespian Stage. You and I went on and on about the possibilities. We are very high on it, and it's possible role in workshops or landstill decks. You predicted 11. I predicted 10, just as taking the under, basically, on yours. Before you, before you, go ahead. Sorry, go what, ahead. what did you have before we get the Did final you say, before result? You reveal, before you reveal, I remember saying I originally predicted 7, but then after we talked about it, I and you predicted 10, I wanted to go above you by 1. <laughs> so I went but go ahead. I, I had forgotten that that's the order that that happened, and thank you for pointing it out. The actual result, sadly, is 0. Wow. There were actually <laughs> no players that tried the Thespian stage. <laughs> and honestly, in light of the previous two cards, I think these three cards in a row are very indicative of the whimsy and the whim of the the vintage community. Players put together some bug fish lists with Night Vale Spectre for the purpose of trying it out and seeing how how good it was. The jury's still out on how their opinion of it as a whole, but one of them makes top eight. A couple more players try out Shattering Blow and sideboard rolls or as a one-of in a main deck, but just yeah. nobody was willing to try Thespian Stage, which honestly surprises me. Yep. And especially in light of our discussions prior, previously in this show and the show pr- before about Library of Alexandria, some players are so quick to say that Library is so dominant yeah. And yet they're not willing to give Thespian Stage even a shot, as even as a one-of. <laughs> maybe maybe if Library is unrestricted, they'll play it, and our <laughs> predictions will come true. <laughs> there you go. Maybe maybe six months from now, we'll all be talking about the four Library, four Thespian Stage world that we live in. <sighs> Honestly, I, I am very surprised that nobody tried this, especially in light of some of the other things we've had. Had a bad feeling about it. So our podcast was published, and then Josh Pachusek said that he tried it in his Landstill deck as a one of, and it wasn't very. I thought, and then and then Blaine Christensen came in, who is known for playing weird workshop lands, and he said he tried it well as well, and it wasn't very good. I kind of felt mm, this might be a we might have bombed out on this. Well, pretty clearly, this is. Well, it's not like we predicted thirty copies. We said you said ten, and I said eleven. So I also think this speaks a little bit to the the community. What's the word you used earlier in the show about how you and I were reinforcing each other? What I said earlier was that um, there is a pressure to conform. I think that this is an example. You and I had similar reinforcement of each other with regard to whispering madness and its possibilities, and so maybe you and I reinforced each other's thoughts a little too much on this one. Yeah. Whispering Madness, though, nice segue there. You predicted two. I predicted five. I was definitely higher up on this one. Again, I thought players would experiment. I thought somebody would come up with something. Actual results were zero. Sadly, no one was willing to try the Whispering Madness experiment. No one was even willing to toss one into an otherwise good deck. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I thought the natural home for that was was Steel City Vault, where it could do quite a bit of good, but <clears throat> I don't think anyone really gave that a shot. 
Well, we'll see. Time may tell. We may see one or appearance or more in a sideboard, maybe in a burning long type deck. But, but for now, it was a miss on our part. And last but not least, illness in the ranks. Sideboard card, token hoser. You predicted one. I predicted two. I thought more people would go to it to fight Oath. Actual results were zero. No one tried it out. So I won the last two. That's right. That's it. <laughs> but similar to Shattering Blow and Demir Charm and Night Vale Spectre, I think Illness in the Ranks is one of those cards that someone can and, and may still try. And sure. because it has function, it's highly efficient. It just kind of depends on what you're willing to do. People, people. It seems like people are almost more willing to try these like niche utility cards than these like potentially high power engines. <laughs> it's very, these- it's very interesting. Yeah, the ones that snuck up on us. It's been the last two set reviews have been like that. Demir Charm and even even, even Blind Obedience and and the big time on on Death Right Shaman and Abrupt Decay. Right. I, I mean, I think I won the last the last set review because I was high on Deathrite Shaman, whereas you and pretty much the entire Magic community bashed it. Whereas we both said zero for Abrupt Decay, and it was hugely popular. Agreed. And that was that's one of the biggest misses of all time. <laughs> I think this is a, a valuable learning experience for us because we keep getting surprised by the community's willingness to use these utility cards. Yeah. And and, and if you'll remember, I actually got a win over you in our last set review because of Rockdos Charm for that reason. Yep. I said that somebody's going to try it, and I was right. One player had it in their sideboard, and it's a similar thing. You know, it's funny. These utility cards, we really should maybe think about a new evaluation process that speaks more to the time, over time. Because I would be very surprised if, say, Rakdos Charm was used many more than one time since our set review. Yeah. And I'll be very surprised if Shattering Blow, for example, is used many more than one or two times for the next three months. But to that point, though, I was looking back, and Abrupt Decay has doubled its number of appearances. Which, again, reinforces our collective head-scratching over that card. I know we've gotten some criticism for how we failed to respect that card, but honestly, I continue to be a little confused at its great popularity. I I, I have as well, and I think I've, I've had some back and forth on that. I think the explanation for Abrupt Decay is that, really, it's one of the best removal spells for these last decks. So... That's the key point, whereas it's like it hits Oath, it hits Time Vault, it hits Bobs. It's really good in these bug-type decks. And and part of it is that it's not just that it destroys these permanents, but you don't have to, like, use counter magic or disruption to protect it. So you can really play a tempo game. You know, you don't have to invest in a lot of counter magic to re- remove, like, an Oath to make sure that you cleared out their counter magic before you play it. And I also think it just has enough utility that some, like, control pilots are using it as well, and people like Dark Times play it. Right. So it's, it's just enough broad utility, and then tempo-based configurations that don't want to, you, you know, where, where the creature decks want to run out the creatures and then play the Abrupt Decay, whereas having to hold cards back, like Counter Magic, or, or play a Duress to protect it. So that's I think that's where it's coming from. But the main criticism we had is, okay, it doesn't hit Jace, it doesn't hit Lodestone Golem, it doesn't do anything about Blightstone Colossus. How is this card playable again? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't do anything against Dredge, and all the uncounterability in the world combined with a two differently colored mana cost is a serious liability against Shops. Right. And so right. I think you and I, I guess, just overemphasized its poor performance against two of the biggest bugaboos of the format. Right, and we underestimated its effect in those like bug and, and tempo type decks. Right. Which explains it, I think. I think that's pretty good explanation. Well, good lessons. I think we should definitely consider ourselves educated on the value of those utility cards going forward. 
Before we too harshly judge ourselves, I think it's worth also noting that really Gatecrash was, uh, was an extremely weak set overall, and so the, we're talking uh, like the difference between zeros and threes, right? This isn't like this is not like we we misjudge Gristlebrand or something, right? right. <laughs> this is <laughs> these are cards that were very marginal, and we were off by really tiny numbers. I think the, probably the variance numbers you're about to unveil, Vale will speak to that. Yes, and our variance numbers were similar from this set to the prior, and they so, and they so did improve. How many did, how many did you win? How many did I win? Were the top? Well, counting the ties where we both yep. got the correct answer, I won eight and you won six. That's pretty close. It is quite close. And similar to our last one, I mean, you won, I think, seven to four last time. So we're having similar performance. In this case, our variance in terms of how far we were off from each actual total was very low this time. Your average variance was 1.9, so about two, and your but your median was only one, so you were within one card on most, and my average and variance was both 0.5, so... Well, I think we actually both performed better than our last set review. We were, That's my, my, vari- my variance was one, uh, and my average variance was three was three point three in the last, and yours was one and three point six. That's right. So we actually last set review, despite doing worse in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did we did have a couple of notable misses in this one, but overall our predictions were much more accurate for this set, and I think we're just going to get better over time. I said it before. I really enjoy this report card process that we've built here. I think it's I think it's awesome to go back and reevaluate, and I think we'll get better at predicting because of it. Let's dive into Dragon's Maze, Steve. Last set, and I think going forward, we're going to cover the themes of a set going in. But the themes of this set are much borrowed from the prior two sets. It has all of the 10 mechanics from Return to Ravnica and Gate Crash, and it adds only one of its own new mechanics, which is the fuse mechanic added to split cards. Yes, it's a really interesting mechanic. It's it's an interesting mechanic for at least a couple of reasons. One is because it's a mechanic that doesn't cost any mana. So it's almost strange to call it a mechanic. It's not like Kicker. It's it's in a sense that it's it just allows you to play both sides of the split card at once. But it's not, you know, whenever you are getting an additional effect out of something, with the exception of things like Storm or Cascade, you usually have to pay something else. So, you know, in other words, when you're given an option to do something else, that usually has a cost built in. But in this case, it doesn't. Yeah, it's kind of like unwinding the clock on how split cards were designed almost. That's exactly right. I was really disappointed, Kevin, and we should mention this at the outset, to discover the rule, the ways in which um, this mechanic actually works under the rules. Explain. Well, there are a couple of possibilities, right? I mean, so if you were to, just to read a card and then look at Fuse, there are a couple of possibilities in terms of how that could operationally function under the rules. Sure. Um, one possibility is that each spell could go on the stack separately. The obvious advantage to that is that if a person wanted to counter the card, they'd have to counter both spells separately. Um, and so it would have inherent card advantage, not just sort of whatever you want to call it, spell advantage. And uh, I would point out that a at least one reasonable reading of the reminder text for the ability implies that. Exactly. So the the mechanic itself doesn't determine how 
the card functions under the rule. This is what the rules managers have to do, right? This is a great example of a way in which just looking at a card, you don't actually know what the card does, Mm. right? You have to, you have to have reference to the rules. And if you, if you put both cards on the stack, not only would you have the advantage of, of card advantage, but you would also have the advantage of being able to set up stack tricks so that you could, you know, order things in, in the way that you want. And, uh, I was disappointed to discover that the way that it works under the under the rules is that both cards go on the stack as if you were playing both sides of the split card go on the stack as if you were playing one spell and then you would execute um, the spell from left to right. So one big, in the case of that... One big super card, so to speak? In a, in a sense. Um, and, you know, that's that's just, you know, one way to resolve the ambiguity, but it reminds me a little bit of the Time Vault discussion, right? You could read Time Vault, and it's a little bit like a Rorschach test. There are multiple logical, rational ways to under to interpret the text. Um, and Fuse is ambiguous and requires rules. I, I'm just, I was just disappointed to discover that the way in which Wizards rules team apparently decided to, re- to resolve that ambiguity was in favor of less choice. That is, less choice for players to do cool things with the card. Interesting, and I agree. It's They had so much potential, but I assume they explored all of those versions when they were building this mechanic, and they either caused problems, weren't as intuitive, or resulted in things that players just didn't like. Well, I agree with your points. I think that it, it probably is less intuitive in the sense that m- many players don't really understand the stack, and so allowing some players to take advantage of that knowledge by ordering these spells in a way that's situationally advantageous might seem unfair. <laughs> um, but that said, I mean, I think it's entirely consistent with Wizards' both design and implementation approaches that minimize the stack, um, both within the rules, such as M10 rule changes, which eliminated the stack entirely in the context of combat, or at least in terms of some elements of combat, and their design approach, templating approach, which minimizes, if not eliminates, the use of the term, the stack, entirely. Yep, I agree entirely. I think it's just another example of that philosophy. Also interesting to me how the ability only functions when the card is in your hand. That's something they call out in the first, basically, bullet point after the literal rules text in the comp from the comp rules. The first bullet is if you're casting a split card with fuse from any zone other than your hand, you can't cast both halves. You can pick only one or the other. So make note, Mind's Desire and Snapcaster Mage. Yep. You have to choose. And Cascade, which I think is interesting because I would have to do a study of it, but most other spell abilities that function when you're casting a spell are permitted when you play it from another zone. If you Snapcaster a spell with, well, that's a bad example because of flashback, but if you Mind's Desire a spell with buyback, for example, you can pay the buyback. Or kicker, or entwine. Well, here's an interesting question that is a follow-up thought on, on the point that you just made. In the case of all of those other cards, like a battle mage, the the card the battle mage has kicker, but it's not clear on the face of it whether Beck or Call has fuse or both. Mm. <laughs> interesting. So do we? So do is uh, so I could understand that if um, if Beck doesn't have fuse and Call doesn't have fuse, but only Beck and Call. <laughs> <laughs> well, the more I think about it, and to, to use the examples that you discussed earlier, it seems like they've drawn a line between effects that you have to pay extra for and those you don't. 
Because now that I think about it, Cascade does not function when it's not played from your hand. And so that might be a philosophical line they've chosen to draw, which is if you can pay extra mana for an effect, you can pay it in more contexts. So Kicker the same way. You can only do that from your hand, right? Actually, I think Kicker you can do from any zone. I've said at the outset I haven't done a comprehensive study of this. That's just my recollection of how things are. But But to say the least, this is a a new design space for these split cards and will cause players to have lots more options, but probably some more confusion in a number of circumstances. And and it makes sense that the the way in which they decided to interpret it may have been the most, may be the most intuitive. Although, again, the less flexible and less interesting for the most advanced players. Agreed. So let's talk about Beck and Call then, while we're on the topic. This card is a... Multicolor split sorcery. Beck is blue-green sorcery. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield this turn, you may draw a card. Call is four white-blue sorcery. Put four one-one white bird creature tokens with flying onto the battlefield. And it's pretty clear that when you fuse them together, not only will you immediately draw four cards, but then the Beck effect will linger for the rest of the turn. So if you manage to pull this off, it's draw four cards, get four 1-1 one, one flying creatures, which is pretty pretty nice, but it's kind of a lot to ask for, even for eight mana. Yeah, yeah, that is a lot to ask for eight mana, especially in, in Vintage or Legacy. Mm-hmm. It, it is interesting to note, just apropos of the discussion we made about the stack versus the way in which this card is now functions if you use Fuse, that you would, if, if you were able to order these on the stack, you would put Call on the stack first. So you would do it. You would order them call then back, but it actually turns out that that's exactly how they would resolve under the current rules anyway. So yeah. it's 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 operationally best, but less confusing because if you if players had to order them on the stack, there's a very good chance they might do it in the wrong order. Yes, that's a very interesting point. If you were choosing this as two separate spells, I believe a lot of players due to either inexperience or lack of understanding of the stack or simple shortcutting would get this in the wrong or the the undesirable order. And so that probably contributed powerfully to their wanting to just combine these into one big effect so that players would always and intrinsically get the best value. Yeah, that's a whole other discussion, though, whether that's a good thing or bad. (laughs) Agreed, agreed. (laughs) But in the vintage context, we're talking almost entirely about Beck as an addition to a glimpse of nature. I find it useful in looking at either charms or split cards or whatever, multi-effect spells, to just basically look at what they are in terms of their components. So Beck is Glimpse of Nature, and Call is basically double Battle Screech. Um, obviously, Battle Screech is not vintage playable, and <laughs> uh, Glimpse of Nature sees a very marginal amount of play. Marginal, but predictable. Our good friend Riley continues to make top eights in the Ohio area with his elves deck. And I would expect that he, and possibly a few other people, would do so and add at least one, if not more, back to their deck. Yes. So the question is, if this is going to see play, will this see play as Glimpse of Nature 6 through 8 or 6 through uh, 10 or however many? Sorry. So start, <laughs> start again. Start over. Um, so the question is, will Elves pilots like Riley want to add this to their Elves deck um, as an additional Glimpse of Nature? Right now, Elves decks in Vintage and Legacy, and at least in Vintage, use Glimpse of Nature and Skull Clamp as their draw engine. And Glimpse is the preferred one because it's one mana investment and you continue to, to draw cards from it. Whereas Skull Clamp can be a very, you know, it's not that you're not generating lots of mana, but it, it continues to cost mana every time you use it. Whereas this is a pretty good deal, I think, in comparison with Skull Clamp. 
agree completely. And I've seen some of Riley's lists run as many as three skull clamps, which implies, using your comparison, that there could be multiple becks in replace of those. Yes, I think so. And it's not that hard to cast to, to generate a blue. Um, not only can the mana elves do it inherently, but you can just throw some tropical islands in there as well. Absolutely. The deck, I think, has ready access to multiple colors. Mostly green, of course, but I think that issue is pretty marginal in the deck on a whole. Also, this card has the potential, at least in a few narrow circumstances, to be cast at full fuse value out of the elves deck. Every once in a while, that's the sort of deck that finds itself with much mana and very little action, at which right. point a full Beck and Call would be just huge. What's the uh, what's the big elf that they play that draws a card for each elf that is in play? It's not an elf. You're thinking of Regal Force, which is a seven-mana yes. creature that draws for each green creature you have in play. Exactly. And so this can kind of just... I mean, imagine, for example, if you've already played like a Glimpse or two and you have Beck, and you cast Beck and Call, mm-hmm. you're drawing like 12 cards off Call. That's a good point. And I think the comparison to Regal Force is very apt because they're usually running just one of that card and fetching it with Green Sun Zenith, thereby making its casting converted mana cost functionally eight, which is the same. Or Summoner's Pack, but yes. That's true. It's possible that way as well. But in some cases, they're paying a full eight mana for that draw effect. So the notion that they might pay eight for a back-end call is completely reasonable. I think one also potentially interesting question is whether now that we have eight glimpses of of nature effects, whether that opens other design space, like for a Cobalt deck or something like that. Ah, there you go. Yes, there's a lot of increasing number. Every couple of sets, we get more reason to run just a great number of zero casting cost creatures. There have been a handful of decks throughout the history of Magic. I don't know how many of them made a splash in Vintage, but I'm thinking of some old extended decks, Fruity Pebbles, which relied oh, yeah. on zero-casting cost creatures in an engine. Like Shield Sphere and all that stuff. How many kobolds are there, anyway? There are three different kobolds. There are zero-casting costs. Correct. For a total of 12. Right. Gotcha. I mean, it wouldn't be that hard to, to run a deck with four Beck and Call, four Glimpse of Nature, maybe even some Skull Clamps, all the kobolds, Ornithopter, Shield Spheres. Memnite. Memnite, that's right. Mm-hmm. And probably and probably draw your whole deck. <laughs> Such a thing could be done. It's pretty dangerous in the vintage context to run that kind of combo where the creatures are completely nullified by Chalice of the Void. Yes. But anyway. But if you can win up one consistently, then you just have to you can then you can play uh Leyline of Anticipation and win first. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Contrary to our conversation about how much I dislike what Leyline of Sanctity represents, I love everything that Leyline of Anticipation represents. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, Steve, let's put our proverbial money where our mouth is. Do you want to go first or shall I? It's up to you. All right, I'll go first. I believe that at least one Beck is a pretty obvious inclusion in the Modern Elves deck, possibly more. I'm not an expert in that deck, but you could make a case for one to three, I think, easily. So I fully expect that someone, it may be Riley Kern and it may not be, but someone will make an appearance with this. So I'm going to go with one. Yeah, I'm going to put my chips on Riley Curran as well. <laughs> I think he'll he'll try it, and I'm also putting my money that he'll make a top eight. So I'll go with one as well. All right, no pressure, Riley. Okay, let's move on to Blood Scrivener. Now, this is an interesting one. Creature, zombie wizard, one black. If you would draw a card while you have no cards in hand, instead, draw two cards and lose one life, and they are 2-1. 
Steve, obviously, the comparison immediately goes to Dark Confidant, but functionally, these cards are dramatically different. What do you think? They are dramatically different. They're both ostensible draw engines, but they do they do some very, very different ways. Uh, the main thing I think that is important to think about and to put in context is the idea of extreme conditionality as a design approach. That is, you often find in Legacy and Vintage cards that have triggers that are, at least compared to other formats, extreme forms of conditionality. And this card, I think, is a great example of that. So another example would be Laboratory Maniac, a card that only triggers if you have no cards in your library, which, you know, would be crazy in most formats, but is, you know, with some work and, and, and some a little bit of effort, feasible in Eternal formats. This card has two conditions, and I think the key point is that while both conditions, bo- while both conditions are maybe feasible, it's it's achieving both conditions simultaneously is actually much more difficult. So it's not that either condition is difficult; it's it's the interaction of the two conditions that's particularly the challenge here. Will you lay those out? So the first condition is you have to have hellbent, no cards in hand. And the second condition is you have to have a draw trigger, a draw trigger. So it can't be a dark confidant or even the necropotence activation. You have to have a draw trigger, and the reason that's that's difficult is because obviously most draw triggers that aren't in your draw step are things like Cataxian Probe, Brainstorm, Ancestral Recall, etc., etc. That is cards from your hand. And unless one of those cards is the last card in your hand you put on the stack, you probably don't have Hellbent. It's pretty clear that there is no vintage deck right now that reliably has Hellbent. There's no deck that has that as any kind of an operational goal. Why do you think that is? Well, because vintage is so packed with the need to fight via card advantage and utility exactly. and you simply don't you can't manufacture the kind of advantage and utility through having no cards in your hand now there is one possible exception in dredge of course yes. that's as they execute their plan their hand tends towards zero that, and their graveyard functions as their hand. Correct. So that's a bit of a misnomer, and there's absolutely no way that that deck would use this card. So, But operationally, there's no deck that this goes right into. You would have to be building a deck that was just riddled with ways to empty one's hand, to translate resources from your hand onto the board or right. some other way. Deck that would be filled with a lot of draw triggers, effects, like you said. Gitaxian Probe would almost certainly be in such a deck. And as you said, it's not hard... I mean, if you fill your deck with things that are cheap and easy and get, just empty your hand, it's not hard to achieve Hellbent. It's not right, it's not right. hard to cast this guy. It's just desirable because you want to be able to interact. That means using duresses, counter magic, etc., etc. Right. Such a deck would be just hopelessly weak if it never drew this card. If you yeah, if you emptied yeah, your hand, yes, and, and and succeeded in doing that, and maybe you hurt your opponent a bit in the process with some duresses or... I don't know. The fact is you could get to Hellbent pretty quickly and you would need to have many other things that were valuable to achieve that goal and to result from that goal than just this card because this is not going to get it done. Right. There's another structural limitation on Hellbent, which is that you, you can't have multiple lands because of a turn. So if you if you have an opening hand that is you know more than two two lands, then you draw lands, but you can never actually achieve Hellbent in a timely manner. Yeah, it's a very good point. You'd have to have an exceedingly land light deck, which would play into the other strategies of having mana sources translated onto the board via Moxon, all different kinds of Moxon. But that kind of strategy is also just it 
has lots of weaknesses against the field in modern vintage. Lots of Moxon, for example, are, are the most important. They're pretty good against workshops, as we know, but then you run into right. the issue of their board presence is going to be so much more powerful than yours. It, it's amazing how these, these two simple conditions and the interaction between them, we can extrapolate into such a vivid design structural approach. I mean, you can pretty much understand, okay, you've got to have a minimal amount of land. You've got to be able to do X, Y, and Z. You've got to be able to empty your hand quickly. You know, so all a very simple amount of text implies so much in magic. It's really an amazing thing. The the thing though that I think that is um, most important to, to juxtapose this card with and Dark Confidant is that while seemingly super superficially similar in so many ways, these cards are so incredibly different. Mm-hmm. And the, the biggest difference I think that it, that it gets to the question of whether this card can see play is the Dark Confidant generates card advantage in a consistent and reliable way. And I don't just mean that in the sense that you know you're going to get a card a turn, but I mean that if this card is going this card is not going to generate. You played on turn one, you're probably not going to get card advantage on turn two. The, the the key question, the most important question, I think, of all the questions, there are many that this card raises, is this. Can you find a way to trigger it multiple times a turn in one big turn? If the answer is yes, if the answer to, like, for example, if you can set up, play this on turn one and set up a turn two or turn three combo victory, where you're not just activating this once, but you're activating it two, three, four, five, six times a turn to a big finish, then I think you've got a viable engine. Because this card does something no other card really does in that sense. It doesn't cost you any mana and just continue to generate you cards, provided you can satisfy the condition. I think rather than talking about what's wrong with this card or why it's at a disadvantage, let's think about how you might construct such a deck. Well, that's sort of what was implied by what I just said. Exactly. So So you're going to want to have permanents that could generate draws or at least get out of your hand and still have their effects. Or or J's or things like that. Good example. Good example. You're going to want cheap spells that generate draws for when they're the last card in your hand, like Probe, Brainstorm Ancestral, of course, and maybe Preordains, Ponder. You're going to want cards that... Or metamorphose, things like that. Yep. Good point. You're going to want cards that help you reach your hellbent while still injuring your opponent or denying them something. So you're going to want things like Duress or Thoughtseize, probably. Yep. Get out of your hand and still fight them. And you're going to want cards that affect in zones other than your hands. So we talked about top. You're probably going to want something like Cobalt Therapy, for example, functions in your graveyard, maybe Blood Ghasts to, to take a yes. page from Dredge. Yes. And you're going to want lots of fast mana sources with few lands. You're going to be almost certainly playing Chrome Mox and Mox Opal to some degree. Yes, I agree with all that. And in order to fight things like Dredge and Workshops, you're probably going to have a preponderance of permanent-based hosers. Maybe you'd play some Graft Digger's Cage, may- main deck, maybe... Well, not if you not if you play with Zombie Infestation and Deep Analysis, but yeah. That's a good point. Maybe Cage is going to hurt your own strategy too much. But at least... At least there. Tormod's Crypt and or um, Nile uh, Spellbomb. Yeah, Nile Spellbombs. The Spellbombs are another good example. You can play with things like Chromatic Spheres, things like that as well. You could play with Goblin Welder, which has some synergy with your top, and you might have some other recursive artifacts like the Spellbomb. In fact, the Spellbomb is perfect, now that I think about it. You get Welder on the table, and you can basically get two draws out of your Spellbombs. Yep. So such a deck, when you position it like that, such a deck doesn't sound completely out of the realm of possibility. You can play a number of highly relevant and disruptive effects, 
but it's all sort yeah. of not leading very far. Well, you don't need to go very far. All you need, to, but the one of the problems, I guess, two problems. One, you can't really have probably one of the eight lands because if you have that many lands, you're going to have your, your chances of drawing two lands in an opportunity. If you, for example, if you trigger this and you draw two lands, you're boned. Yeah, because you can you can no longer go off unless you can somehow immediately empty them with like a zombie infestation or a bazaar. True. My feeling is that none of the cards we've listed are game-winning effects. You said Jace earlier. Now, that could be a game-winning card, except that's way above the curve for this deck, I believe. The second important point is that, you know, the, the natural finisher for everything like this is probably like a Tendrils or some sort of Storm spell, storm Finisher. Mm-hmm. The problem is, if you're if you're just, you know, if you're going from basically zero to two cards with each trigger, you, you don't know if you're going to be able to continue to combo out. Now, it's possible that, you know, in the course of it, you just continue to sort of spread one casting cost draws onto the table, like the Eggs deck does. Sure. And, 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 but it, it's also possible that you, you're not doing that, and you know what you need is a way to manipulate your library to find the finisher at the right time. And if you don't, then you've done a lot of work to, towards an uncertain end, right? Yeah, agree completely. And it, it's increasingly hard to protect a victory like that when you're starting a turn, for example, with very low cards. This deck is almost certainly, even if it was, well, a, a combo-type finish, I would be very surprised if such a deck could reliably win on turn two even. Yeah, I think I you're mean, looking at a turn three combo deck with extra disruption. I think that's probably right. But I do think it's probably possible that you could go like turn one this, you know, dump a chromatic sphere or two on the table or conjurer's bobble on the table. Turn t- turn two, sorry, turn one this and, and, you know, dump a conjurer's bobble on the table or a chromatic sphere. Turn two, you could you could maybe try and start going off. That's true. And, and depending on oh, the ratio... Spell clamp is pretty good with this card. Good point. Especially if you're running extra creatures, a la Welder or Bob or something else. Yeah. Unfortunately, this card and Bob are not very synergistic if you're starting your turn with an empty hand. You're probably going to run Bob anyway, but yep. Yeah, you're probably going to run it just because it's so good and it's synergistic by itself with the rest of the cards we're talking about. Uh, it may be it may be worth putting in like unmasked and zombie infestation. Yeah, agreed. Zombie infestation is an interesting card. It uh, has the no mana activation, which means if you really get churning with this engine, it pays off more and more every time. I think that you might be onto something there. There wouldn't be the first vintage deck to win with the whole army of two two zombies. <laughs> <laughs> you just need to get anger into the graveyard. And and- <laughs> there you go. And maybe this deck has more in common in the end with Dredge than we're giving it credit for. But anyway. Hey, possible. Well, we've talked about a lot of options, good and bad. What do you think ultimately, Steve? Well, I think that the fundamental problem with this is that the conditionality is it's not just that I, you, you can't get help and it's not just that you can't get a draw trigger. But I think getting both of those lined up together multiple times per turn is too too much work or too little effort. I think the second problem is that this just doesn't do anything in the early game before your big turn. So it doesn't like Dark Confidant is just better in that sense. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's going to see zero top eights. I think also that the format has evolved to the point where everyone knows how to handle a 2-1 black creature for two pretty darn well. And that could lead to situations where even if you successfully put together your engine, you get completely undone by an untimely instant. I'm predicting zero appearances as well. That's a good point. There are a lot of lightning bolts around still. Agreed. The next card is one that I pretty much just put in here for fun because I think it has a lot of bearing on vintage deck construction discussion, but might not go very far. That's Possibility Storm. We're talking about a red enchantment for three red red. 
Whenever a player casts a spell from his or her hand, that player exiles it, then exiles cards from the top of his or her library until he or she reveals a card that shares a type with it. That player may cast that card without paying its mana cost. Then he or she puts all cards exiled with Possibility Storm on the bottom of his or her library in random order. Five mana enchantments. Better win the game in Vintage pretty soon after coming into play in order for them to be playable. This spell does one thing that I think is worth notice notice of, and that is it allows you to skirt the mana cost of whatever spell you reveal. And that alone, I think, makes it worth considering. But ultimately, the randomness aspect of it, I think, ultimately probably counteracts all the power that it has. I'm picturing a Belcher-style shell with the typical Belcher accelerants, extra moxins, some rituals, maybe land grant, but then you could tweak such a shell to emphasize one card type or another. Imagine a scenario where your only creatures were, say, four tinder walls and one emrakul. <laughs> such that after resolving your possibility storm, the next every tinder wall you play has the possibility of just becoming emrakul. So just to clarify, though, when you play, so let's say you play tinder wall and trigger this enchantment. Mm-hmm. And you reveal a tinder wall. You can't then play that tinder wall and trigger it again. That's right. It, the chain does not continue. The trigger condition for this is when you play a spell from your hand, and the card you ultimately reveal from this is not coming from your hand, so it doesn't keep going in a cycle. So in the case of four tinder wall, one emrakul, you have a 25% chance of, of hitting the emrakul. Yeah, basically. Which isn't isn't small, but it's not great either. It's not reliable. Agreed. Which is why I said that counteracts the power of the thing. But it's also worth pointing. <laughs> out that this is the reveal while it is it's, random it, it, i mean it's also worth pointing out that if i cast emrakle i might reveal a tinder wall <laughs> <laughs> very good I point just, you would never want to do that <laughs> right, go ahead it's worth pointing out though that the if you can order the top of your library then this becomes deterministic so cards like brainstorm ponder top those cards and, and Mirage Tutors all become deterministic when you have the appropriate card type in your hand. Okay, so, so let's let's focus on that this, this card type point that you're making, which is really interesting. So how many card types are there, not, not counting tribal? What, seven? Right. Seven. So if you were to build a deck that basically has minimal amounts of every card type, but sort of a broken combination, so you've got like... <laughs> This this is the most schizophrenic deck you could build because it's going to have like these ridiculous cards that are uncastable and then these super efficient cards. Um, although it's probably going to have a lot of artifacts, so that might be mm-hmm. the exception. So you're setting up a situation where you want to maximize your chances of hitting, of being able to sort of you know hit something ridiculous. So for example, if you've got like let's just assume there's like two creatures in the deck, one Tinderwall and then one Emrakul, mm-hmm. and like two instants in the deck. I don't know, uh, let's say three instants. Ancestral Brainstorm, and what's it like a huge instant that you would never normally cast that maybe costs like 10 mana? Oh, okay, just imagine. Uh, boy, uh, uh, I can't even think of a huge instant. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll just, ima- just imagine, sure there probably is one somewhere um, that doesn't have X in the casting cost. Right, um, that's the thing, is I can only think of things with X. But anyway, go on. So is it possible, though, that if I cast Brainstorm Ancestral, that I could, because I only have one or two other instances in my deck, that in, instead of using it to reveal another key card, rather I could use this to sort of stack my library? 
Are you referring to the aftermath of revealing from Possibility yeah. Storm? Yes. Well, the, yes. the remaining cards that you exile, the ones you don't cast, are returned to the bottom of your library in random order. Ah. So you, you can't get the benefit of just ordering your entire library like you can with other effects that have been like I was this. Gonna say, otherwise, this is like a five-cast-and-cost card. That with minimal effort, you could basically Goblin Recruiter your entire deck. Mm, no, sorry. That won't work. Yep. <clears throat> I also think there's something to be said for spells that have triggers on being cast because in many cases the trigger that you get from such a spell is more valuable than the spell itself examples include storm replicate and cascade let's use cascade because i think it's the best example so you get your possibility storm into play and then you play your three mana cascade spell the spell itself, the, the text box aside from Cascade, is usually frequently entirely irrelevant. That spell gets exiled, and then you start flipping to find one that matches its type, in addition to which you also get to Cascade. So Possibility Storm removes... I mean, Cascade plus Possibility Storm basically gets you totally free resources by removing the worst part of the Cascade spell. Similarly for Storm, it's not so much the worst part as you just get to remove one copy of Storm. At the cost of that, you get another random spell, and perhaps not so random if you've built your deck accordingly. So if you if you play with a bunch of Storm spells, you can get some real, or Cascade, you get some card advantage. Yes, possibility. Also, it's worth noting that there are enough effects in Vintage to that translate card types. And by that, I mean look at Summoner's Pact. Summoner's Pact is an instant that effectively becomes a creature. Mm-hmm. You can have a deck that has four Summoner's Pact and one green creature and right. then one other creature, say Emrakul, at which point you have effectively five ways to cast Emrakul for the, the, the cheat for one mana. Mm-hmm. Now, that might be a bad example because Summoner's Pact has a problem with the following upkeep, but you see my point where yes. you can translate card types using the broad depth of the vintage card pool. Another interesting example... Yeah, exactly. Another interesting example is is Zoetic Caverns, which is a creature while it's on the stack. So you could literally have only one creature in your deck and trigger Possibility Storm for a creature using Zoetic Caverns. Wow. Wow. That's a really... That's a cool example. Is, is that a morph card? Yes. It's a land that has morph. Wow. Based on what I've read, I believe that Possibility Storm does work with Zoetic Caverns because it would check the type of the spell that it exiled, not the card that resulted in the exile zone. Right. So, but it says the card type, not spell type. Yeah. You know what? It just says, <clears throat> shares a card type with it. And so <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to intuit right off the bat which it it's referring to. Yeah. <laughs> so... What I'm getting at, ultimately, is that there are a lot of possibilities with Possibility Storm, and there may be... But there's no possibility it will see play. (laughs) I think if if there is a way that it can be reliably manipulated to reliably skirt the mana cost on a huge effect, a la Emrakul, then I think there's a chance it could be added to another shell. Almost certainly such a deck would function similar to how a Belcher deck functions, because the fast mana getting this five mana card into play you know as well as i that if you can pay five mana and effectively win right there then it's worth considering at least well there is actually something else that just occurred to me 
if you like Doomsday with this in play, then you could do some really broken things. Absolutely, you could. If you can just that's a pretty stiff condition. Yeah, I mean, if you can do something where you can like dramatically reduce the size of your library, then this card can be really busted. Interesting. We know that there are ways to do that in Vintage. That's for certain. There are multiple ways to do that. But also, such an effect would have to be a little more predictable because just removing half of your library could counteract your combo that you have built in. Yeah, it'd have to be selective like Doom. Still, you, you have hit upon the notion that I was thinking of, which is this, if you can manipulate it well enough, this does allow you to skirt mana costs. Well, I think you've already stated your opinion, possibility or no, you predicting zero, is that right? Yep. Sadly, since I don't see it immediately right in front of me, and this kind of thing has never really quickly materialized in the past, I'm going to go ahead with zero. I don't think this is quite as obvious or reliable as even, say, the Rogue Hermit combo. Yeah. Next up, we have Catch and Release. This is another one that I bring up more for historical precedent than actual expected value. And because it's a split card, I really am only focused on the catch side, but I'll read the whole thing. Catch is a sorcery, one blue-red, gain control of target permanent until end of turn. Untap it, it gains haste until end of turn. Release is four red-white. Each player sacrifices an artifact, a creature, an enchantment, a land, and a planeswalker. The reason I bring this up is because catch is unprecedented in its cost at being able to gain control of a permanent. That effect, gain control of target permanent, has heretofore cost five mana or more. And this one now casts for three mana, one of which being blue, which immediately puts it into the realm of vintage castability. And there are a handful of cards that were previously safe from temporary gain control effects like this, namely Planeswalkers. So if I'm playing in a, say, Jace or Tezzeret-type mirror, I get to, for three mana, take your Planeswalker and activate it on my turn. I think that's worth considering as an unprecedented effect, which is one way I know that you like to evaluate new cards entering the card pool. What do you think? I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, I hadn't really considered it from that, that perspective. So all the previous threat effects don't say any card. They specify card type? Yes. I mean, that is all the ones that have cost three have been limited to creatures and possibly one with artifacts. Nothing that allow you to gain control of, say, an enchantment or a planeswalker. It's really interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it, that does make this a little more tricky to evaluate. Anytime you have an entirely novel effect, although it's not, it's it's novel in the sense of its scope, not necessarily in the sense of the mechanic itself. Right. Um, you have to you have to give it some some serious extra consideration. Um, I mean, it seems to me that there is definitely value to that sort of effect, but vintage doesn't seem to reward it. I mean, none of the threatened effects see play. The only thing that I can possibly think of is like Magus Magus of the what's it called? Unseen, and because it costs two mana to cast. That was the Kiromichi Atau's 2000 and what was it? 10 vintage championship deck list. Right. I suppose you, it's worth noting Old Man of the Sea and Sea Singer have seen play, but that's more for their reusability rather than their right. targets. And you can keep that. So if you use Old Man of the Sea Singer to steal something, keep that card. Right. This is a time effect. Right. Unless you are somehow able to play release as well. I think the jury's still out on whether or not there will ever be a Planeswalker or some other permanent type that it's more worth 
taking and using than just destroying? Well, let's flip the question. Let's flip the question. What casting cost and card, describe the card that does what catch does. So just don't look at catch. Just think they would have, to, what would make something playable? Vintage. What would it have to be if it said gain control of target permanent until end of turn? You may untap it and use it. I think it would be playable as an instant at even more than one mana if it was target permanent. I'm just, I'm just wondering how good do you think that card would be if it was a blue instant and it cost the same as unsummon? It wasn't unsummon, it just gained control of it. It would be, I think it would be very good because of planeswalkers. And the, the functional difference though is the instant speed. As an instant, you can effectively block your opponent's attacks with their planeswalkers. Yes. Yeah. Which is, a, I mean, you could also do, you could also do things like block a lodestone golem with another. It would be pretty darn good. Yeah, I agree. So the combination of really cheap and instant speed changes the evaluation. The sorcery speed aspect of catch and all previous threaten effects, or most, <laughs> is the real hamstring. That's the limitation. I think that I think that this little thought experiment illustrates that. Yeah, I it's agree. Cast is the it's, it's the speed. And we may get there. It seems that Catch is clearly a march down a, a path, and it's clearly in reference to Planeswalkers, the fact that they've changed the, the targeting condition on these threatened effects like this. And who knows? We might actually end up at the place you're describing. Until then, though, I think that Catch is worth keeping in the back of one's mind. If there's ever a preponderance of, say, giant planeswalkers like Karn Liberated or Nicol Bolas, Catch becomes a little more attractive. Yeah. Also, you know, <laughs> I can't believe I haven't mentioned it before now, but Catch is something that I think Standard and maybe some EDH players have been on the lookout for ever since Zealous Conscript became popular, and that is stealing a planeswalker's ultimate. I do not expect that to be very common in Vintage at all, because typically when a Planeswalker is nearing ultimate, it means one player has total control over the game. Yes. But it's a possibility, and a Jace the Mind Sculptor playing person, for example, might be marching up by controlling the top of your library and not know that you have <laughs> this in your hand. And When you said... Go ahead. I think that's a good point, and then you just use this as a blowout. What, what is your... Um, what is your point, though, about if the format has more Karns or Nickel Bolasses? As it stands, and not and barring ultimate effects, the various abilities of Planeswalkers that are common to the format are frequently not worth taking just one time. That's what I... Yeah. So, you wouldn't pay three mana to Brainstorm. You wouldn't pay that. I mean, well, you might still, but... <laughs> but... <laughs> but um, but all the other abilities. Also, these most planeswalkers these days don't have the ability to self-destruct. That's why I used Karn and Nicol Bolas as other examples, because those cards have the ability to self-destruct. But also, their effects are just bigger and splashier, aside from their ultimates. So that's why, if there was some way that you could tinker in a Nicol Bolas, and that started to become a more common thing in Vintage, then you might see effects like this going way up in value. Karn Liberated has started to see some play in right. Tezzeret decks. Can you imagine if this was instant and someone played Bristlebrand into play? <laughs> and they like, suddenly go respond, cash, you know, or something like that? My God. You know, I can't believe we've gone this far without simply mentioning Gristlebrand. While he is frequently a game-ending play out of an Oath deck, it's not always the case. Yeah, and but... you would get to attack them before they got to attack you, in some cases. Then you could draw 21. <laughs> <laughs> you know... I'm loath to bring up things in the Oath Mirror because that is such an overly complex situation, but this might have some relevance in that context. A way to hedge against your opponent having been able to Oath before you. I don't know. That's really reaching. But Gristlebrand is yet another example of the sort of thing that is finally valuable to have just temporarily during your main phase. 
And being able to attack them, the fact that it untaps and gives haste, is ironically highly relevant when it comes to Gristlebrand. There's no chance that this thing will steal Gristlebrand. I don't know. There are some situations when Oath players have fought fought tooth and nail to get to the point of activating Oath, and they are... Yeah, but once they spent all their mana... This thing won't resolve. Well, I don't know. But think, if you're the player who has access to catch in your hand, for example, you could sculpt the situation such that maybe you didn't expend all your resources fighting over the oath to begin with. I don't know. I, I'm I'm simply saying that it is feasible, and it is yet another application for this card. Now, again, I don't think that's the state right now. First and foremost, I don't think oath mirrors are that common. This is certainly uh, too much work to try and fight them on that axis. But it is possible. Yeah. It is possible through the whole vintage card pool that we could get to a point where there were enough permanents, specifically planeswalkers, that had this kind of feature. Let's finish up catch and release then. I think ultimately this is one for the notebook for the future possible applications, but not right now. I'm predicting zero. Yep, zero. Let's go on to a split card that is more now, far and away. This is blue-black split card instance. Far is one blue return target creature to its owner's hand. Away is two black target player sacrifices a creature. We've got unsummon. So in other words, in other words, yeah, it's unsummon and diabolical, and each one of those costs exactly one colorless more. Exactly. Is it worth the flexibility in vintage, Steve? I think the flexibility is less important than the card advantage here. Ah, so you're talking about the aspect of them having two creatures potentially and you eliminating both of them with five mana Yep. later on in the game, of course. Yep. I like it, and I tend to agree. I think when you need an unsummon, like, say, against Lodestone Golem, then this card can be that. It's two mana, but unsummoning for two mana is not unheard of. See Echoing Truth. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's scalar, so if you have two mana available, you can use far, and if, once you get to the third, then you can use away. It's also the case that someone might go, like, Lodestone Golem in play and then cast Frexian Metamorph, in which case the unsummon is fine, right? Yeah, good point. Very good point. Getting a functional two-for-one in cases like that. It's also very common for Bob Jace type decks to have just a Dark Confidant in play, in which case this card can function as an edict very well, but frequently such a deck will then tinker for Blightsteel Colossus. And if they have Bob and Blightsteel in play, and you have access to five mana, this card addresses both of them completely. I'm really glad they made Far and Away in this order, because it would have been much worse if it was if it was Diabolic Edict and then Unsummon, I think. No, I agree completely. I think, owing to our prior conversation, they thought probably long and hard about how to sequence these so that players would get maximal value and flexibility. I think this card is not an obvious choice. It's not obviously going to replace any one thing, but I think anyone who's still or who's currently playing Echoing Truth should give it serious consideration. And I think any well, no one is playing Truth. <laughs> so, I mean, Echoing Truth is a barely played card right now, I think. It is occasionally played, though. It's seen in some Landstill decks and I think occasionally in some Bomberman. I think it's there. That's how a lot of Landstill decks, they play um, Engineer Explosives instead. Same in Bomberman, because you can get, use it, get it with Trinket Mage. I think in addition to an explosives, I've seen Echoing Truth played. It's it's look, it's on the outskirts. I'll I'll grant you that. But so is Diabolic Edict. Edict is Diabolic Edict sees much less play. I think it's only used if at all in Dark Times decks. Also occasionally in bug decks, bug fish style or bug control decks. I've seen it there as well. Look, these are both these are both fringe removal spells that see a little bit of play. And I think mm-hmm. that the potential for overlapping them or consolidating them into one card with with a lot of upside 
will be attractive to some players. Agreed. I think that that's the key, the key thing. People love card advantage and vintage. Mm-hmm. This is a nice little control card. Agreed. And I think it would go in any deck that would want one of those things. Obviously, it can only maximize in decks that have blue and black. So land still is probably not going to adapt to this card very much, if at all. But Bomberman, Grixis Control, Oath decks possibly, other four and five color control decks, all of them I think will consider this. Yes. I mean, the casting cost to fuse it is is a little bit prohibitive. It's five, but that's not out of the range of possibility. So even at a fuse cost, this is a playable vintage spell. My favorite method of evaluating split cards is one that Matt Sperling put out on Channel Fireball, where he talks about the card's floor and ceiling. A lot of players would look at a overcosted Unsummon and an overcosted Edict and say, I don't want either of those. Why would I ever play this card? Well, the simple fact is, is Unsummon and Edict have a given floor and ceiling in terms of their power. This card might have a lower floor than them, but at any time you play it, you always get the better of the two. So whichever card has the higher floor at the time you want it, you get to choose that floor. And whichever card has the higher ceiling, you get that. And then there's the possibility of Fuse, which means there's an even greater ceiling on top of all of that. So that's my preferred method of how I would evaluate split cards in general, is they they tend to outperform their individual counterparts, despite the fact that they may have a lower floor at some circumstances than their constituent parts. I like that form of analysis. I think it gets around some initial knee-jerk reactions that players have when they see cards that cost one more than their originals. And I think it helps explain why this card will have utility. Even if it was just a split card, ironically, if it was just an original split card with these two halves, I think it would be playable. The fact that you can fuse them together means the ceiling goes way up in the mid to late game. Yeah, the floor the floor ceiling analogy is interesting because th- th- this, <laughs> in a sense, it's a little bit like an elevator. There are different floors you can get off on. <laughs> so you start you can start with far, you can go to away, or you could max out at the penthouse with far and away. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a nice a nice um, way of thinking about it. I think the key question for this is is um, not so much if it is vintage playable in some abstract sense, but where would it see play? Because that's that will determine how many cards we think, how many appearances of vintage top eights this card will eventually have. I think it'll immediately be adopted, at least tested in bug decks. Those decks definitely want to leverage the possible tempo of an unsummon with the possible late game value of of far and away, because those decks can play their one and two mana spells in the first few turns, but thanks to Deathrite Shaman and a bit of a mid-game, they can very easily expect to reach five mana. So I think Bug Fish or Bug-based control decks are an obvious place. And I think any deck that's four or five colors right now that's testing Abrupt Decay, Shattering Blow, Demir Charm, Is It Charm, any of those uh, utility cards that we've talked so much about, I think those decks would definitely consider this as well. I agree with that assessment. And those, so I guess to your point though, is that those bug type decks are making consistent top eight appearances. They're not dominating by any stretch. Those five color control decks are making consistent top eight appearances. One here, two there. So I think it's not out of the realm of possibility to see a half dozen of these over the course of the next <laughs> few months. Yeah, so I think that I think that's right. I think I'm on the same page as you. Um, you know, this could be a, a card that we underestimated, like we underestimated. Okay, it's, it's very similar in that respect. It's a multicolor spell that is versatile and removal, but not necessarily great against shops or dredge. Um, although it's useful against shops at least, does something. Mm-hmm. 
Um, this can't be your only strategy against shops, that's certain. Right. But it's a reasonable I'm main certain. deck card against them. It seems like it's probably a better card than Shattering Blow, which had four top eight appearances. So I would I would I would say I, I'd expect this to at least have four top eight appearances. That's a good starting point. You want to go first on this number or you want me to? Ooh, I'll go first. Okay. Um so I think it's gonna be more than four and less than nineteen. I think it's gonna be What's probably where do you get nineteen? I think 19 was the original, the number of abrupt decays that appeared after the, in our last set review. I see. At our, at our report card time. Yeah. I think that's a reasonable assessment. I think it's going to probably be closer to the 4 than the 19. So I'm going to go ahead and say, oh Jesus, I'll say, I'll say 7. Okay. All right. I think that you've got a fair analysis there. Comparing it to Shattering Blow, it's probably going to see more use than that. I also think that there's a chance that vintage players might underestimate the value of the fuse to start with. I'm loath to underestimate another utility card like we've been burned by a couple times before, but I don't think this is quite as good as Abrupt Decay as you put it. So I'm going to take the under on what you said. I'm going to say six. All right, I'll create a gap. I'm going to go to eight. Interesting. Feeling spicy? Yes. We're not competing against each other. We're trying to be accurate. We're competing against ourselves. Yes, that's true. We should have said it earlier that during this particular set review, we're not trying to necessarily differentiate ourselves. We are trying to go for accuracy rather than just who's going to win. Let's talk about Notion Thief. This is a creature, human rogue, two blue-black, flash. If an opponent would draw a card, except for the first one he or she draws in each of his or her draw steps, instead that player skips that draw and you draw a card. 3-1. I'm very encouraged, Steve, to see that Wizards is willing to print the draw replacement, a la Chains of Mephistopheles, obviously more like plagiarize in this case, but I'm very encouraged because we talked so much about our You Make the Card submissions that they're they're definitely willing to do this kind of draw replacement. I think that's encouraging for our submission. Yeah, I think I think that's really cool. I think your comparison to plagiarize is appropriate. This is a plagiarize on legs. Definitely. Which is better than plagiarize because it means it stays in play. The, the problem with plagiarize is when you play plagiarize, your opponent just won't draw any extra cards that turn unless they've already got something on the stack. So this is like a perm- permanent deterrent to, to additional forms of card advantage. Mm-hmm. And this is one heck of a narrowly targeted missile at Jace the Mind Sculptor. <laughs> yes. Just <laughs> incredible. Yeah, I mean, people... The comparison in in that vein, an obvious comparison is Vendillion Click. This card is even better in a sense. This card is just you can play them in response to Jace. You can play them the turn after your opponent played Jace. They they can't activate it. You can attack with Jace, hopefully killing it. Um, this card is very good against Jace. I predict that at least one vintage player is going to live the dream with Notion Thief versus Jace and get the full on. I get three cards. You put two back. Kill him on the swing back. That's just going to be oh, awesome. Oh, so good. So exciting. But let's. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it in that way, there's a lot of cool things that this interacts with. Uh, you know, um, this card is absolutely bonkers against draw sevens. <laughs> you, yeah. You 14. It's also quite amusing against standstill. Your opponent puts standstill on the stack. You respond <laughs> by playing this. <laughs> then you can activate the standstill. You can activate the standstill at your leisure. They're not going to want to activate it immediately, so you get to, pro- I mean, probably. So you can probably. <laughs> You're the one in the, in the driver's seat, then. That's and they can't ever play another standstill too. That's really interesting. So this, obviously, drawing cards is one of the hallmarks of the non-dredge, non-workshop archetypes in the format. 
you got your eternal. It's a hallmark. Yeah, you, you got your Jace, your standstill, your Gush, your Mystic Remora, your Ancestral Recall, Brainstorm, Preordain. This card's obviously incredible if you can get it into play versus all those effects. But how reasonable do you think that truly is? Uh, with the exception of Jace, every card I listed costs less. In fact, much less than this well, card. I think what makes it reasonable is the fact that this is a human rogue, which means that you can play with the Cavern of Souls pretty reliably. Ah, so you're thinking Bomberman might slot a few of these in right off the bat. Bomberman for sure. Also Bugfish decks and decks like that that you can it's starting to sound like it goes in a lot of the same decks that Far and Away goes into. No surprise, both blue-black, but also functionally, those are the kind of things that those decks want to accomplish. Well, we saw that in the, in the first set in the block with Death Regiment and Abrupt Decay. Good point. Exactly. And also, those are the kind of decks that tend to play Vendillion Click in this modern vintage era, so it makes sense. What card type is Vendillion Click? Just one one creature type? No, it's actually two, I think. It is, just a moment, it is Fairy Wizard. I mean, if you've got a Cavern and Souls deck, I think that makes this better, because it's a human rogue. I see what you're getting at. If you're already, which you are, you're already playing Cavern of Souls and Bomberman, for example, and your Dark Confidant is a human wizard, so you've got overlap there on human, and then your Salvagers, I don't know if those are a compatible creature type. They are a human soldier, so you have overlap on human there. And I'm pretty sure Trinket Mage is a human as well. Yeah, human wizard. So all of those do overlap on human, which makes Notion Thief slightly more functional than Vendillion Click is, or would be. It's a good point. We might have multicolor human-based aggro control and more of a thing in Vintage going forward. Doesn't synergize with Tarmogoyf so much, but <laughs> <laughs> that's not really too much of a detractor, I don't think. And sadly, Deathrite Shaman is an elf shaman, so no overlap there either. Yeah. But that's not the end of the world. No, no. Still, I think you've got a very good point that those decks can exist today on Bomberman, for example, can exist today without Deathrite Shaman. There's no reason that's a requirement. And maybe Cavern of Souls is positioned to expand its footprint in the format. And we shouldn't underestimate the fact that the creatures that are instants, that have flash, are can be more expensive. I mean, Snapcaster Mage is usually a three or four casting cost spell. Not usually, but oftentimes, in the sense that, you, you know what I mean? Yes. And click click as well. So Yeah, we've been remiss in not mentioning Snapcaster before, how, before now. He's also human wizard. Yeah, so I think this guy is fine. I think he's really exciting. I think he'll, I mean, he's just, he just, it's also worth noting that if you can get this into play before your dredge opponent has a bizarre, uh, they, if they activate the bizarre, you'll draw two cards. And if you can get a jailer into play, um, shutting off their dredge, then they, if every time they activate bizarre, you're drawing two cards, period. Is it possible that this card is good against every deck in vintage? <laughs> I mean, it's a 3-1, so it trades with Lodestone Golem. And it doesn't stop Dredge from working, but it does make them see two fewer cards with every Dredge act or every Bizarre activation and give you a big benefit. Yeah, I really like this creature. Fascinating. The mana cost, though, I think limits it to a one or two of. Agreed. In no matter where it's good. Yeah, I mean, this card is just, I think, brutal against Landstill. Very, very. It's very good. It's it's. It does everything you want a creature to do against Landstill, basically. Hard. It's it has flash, Especially so you can. Have a cavern. Good night. Yeah. Cavern. Oh, God. Wow. All right. Well, we've talked at length about how good it is. So the question is, how good do you really think it is? I think it will appear in vintage top eights. A non-zero amount. Are you going down for one? <laughs> 
non-zero amount. I'm going to say two. Two, huh? I would not be I would not be surprised if there are like eight or nine of these in finished top eights. But I'm going to I'm going to be conservative and say two. I think, man, I think a lot of players will be attracted to this. I think a lot of them will also be discouraged by the converted mana costs. So I'm inclined to think there will be more than two. But boy, it's tempting to just say three. I'm going to say three. Okay. That might be a little generous. We might be surprised, but you know what? Uh, Night Vale Spectre demonstrated that it has some possibility, and I think this is a better card than Night Vale Spectre. Yeah. Let's see how bold people are willing to be, but I think the creature is just this is a this is a really good creature. This is really good. Vintage, the, the, one of the most popular things to do is to draw cards. Right. You know what? It'd be interesting. I would love to build a deck where you could play a bunch of draw sevens, like Whispering Madness and this card. So every card they draw, you're going to be drawing all of them. Yeah. Whispering Madness becomes draw. They discard their hand you draw eight nine ten fourteen <laughs> fourteen yeah yeah God. that's a block constructed combo right there that that could very well be a thing but in vintage i don't think i want to pair too many four four mana spells in my deck fair enough anyway i think we're exci- i think we're collectively pretty excited about notion thief we'll see how it shakes out next up ral zarek poster child for the set planeswalker ral two blue red Plus one, tap target permanent, then untap another target permanent. Minus two, Ralzarek deals three damage to target creature or player. Minus seven, flip five coins, take an extra turn after this one for each coin that comes up heads. Starting loyalty is four. Pretty clearly, four mana Planeswalker has its place in Vintage. Even five mana does if it's blue. Blue-red is not a casting cost we have so much today, but it's certainly possible since decks that play Jace today frequently have red in them. And the thing about this guy is he has no inherent card advantage. Any card advantage that he produces is virtual card advantage, I would say, or maybe as part of some kind of engine. Steve, the twiddle effect for his plus ability immediately reminds me of Time Vault in Twitter, as I imagine it does basically every vintage player. You think he's worth it as a Voltaic key instead of extra Voltaic keys? Well, in a lot of ways, he's much better than Voltaic key. I mean, you can untap a Talarian Academy with this, not just Mana Volts, Mana Crypts, Time Volts, things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, There's also the, in Legacy, the possibility of untapping an island when you have high tides um, that have resolved. You know, um, so, I de- yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the untap thing also reduces his initial casting costs, a little bit like the, the quote free spells from Urza Saga. I think I think that's that's the more important that's the more important point rather than ta- ironically the tapping the opponent's tournament well presumably a tapping the opponent's permanence is less important than untapping one of yours agreed and any deck that plays Ral is almost certainly going to be able to get value out of simply untapping one island you'll be playing your spell pierce your fluster storm maybe preordain but you're going to have something to do with that one island that's productive. The more, the most obvious synergy with this card is Stasis, which I don't believe there's been a Stasis deck in Legacy or Vintage in, a, in quite a while. <laughs> but but it does make me want to play a Stasis deck. I mean, just Stasis this card, tap your opponent's permanence, untap yours, you can pay Stasis indefinitely. Um, that's funny. And it also makes me want to play cards like Gush, which can you can use to fuel Stasis and fuel um, and, and Days to, to untap to, to to make new land drops. It's also interesting to think other cards that are like Stasis, like Mystic Remora. You know that this card 
you know, you can be like completely tapped down and then you can untap your, um, you know, use this to untap a land that you used to pay with Remora. So I think, in other words, it's very easy to get to lose sight of the fact that it's not just that you get to untap a permanent the turn you play this, but you get to untap a permanent the next turn as well and the turn after that. So you'll have, um, you can really do some cool things, generate a lot of additional resources. In other words, it's kind of like a mana elf the next turn if you use it that way. A mana elf that untaps your best or most desirable mana source. Right. So a vintage elf. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A vintage elf. You're going to untap a soul ring or a chrome mox even or mana vault or ancient tomb. It's going to be pretty powerful, I think. It seems pretty clear to me that no deck is going to play Ral's Eric without at least having access to Time Vault. And I think existing... how good is Time Vault too? <laughs> That's pretty cool. Existing Tezzeret decks, for example, frequently will play two or three copies of Tezzeret the Seeker and then two or three copies of either Jace or Tezzeret Agent of Bolas. I could very well see this card replacing Agent of Bolas in such decks. And by the way, Time Vault has similar effects with Mystic Remora as well. Absolutely. Untap the Time Vault the, the hard way without even having the guy in play. <laughs> Just untapping it to skip a turn while your opponent can't do much. Yeah, I do think this this guy can compete with... I mean, he's he's no Jace, but he can, I think, supplement it. I think he's in that strata the Tezzeret Agent of Bolas currently occupies. And he does see a handful of top eights. I mean, so we haven't even talked about the other two abilities. Yes, three damage to target creature or player is fantastic. Yeah. Obviously, you're going to be controlling Dark Confidants. You're going to be controlling Lodestone Golems. Um, and the fact that he can kill, or sorry, target a player means that, similar to Jace the Mind Sculptor and Tezzeret the Seeker, he is a game-winning effect with Time Vault all by himself. So you can actually kill your opponent with just Ralzeric and Time Vault without needing any other pieces. You know what, Steve? We haven't even mentioned Goblin Welder, who we haven't seen a good control-based welder deck in a while either. Imagine getting multiple welds per turn with Zral. Or you could weld and then attack with Whispering Madness. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that. Yeah, no, but that's that's a great point. I mean, to be to be able to use Goblin Welder two or three times a turn is ridiculous. Often. He may, be the, he may be the thing that brings back Welder into a control shell. This untap thing is so versatile. Oh, it, this is also worth noting. You could generate two spirit tokens in Oath Mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. I don't know how how powerful that particular example is. Yeah. But hey, it might help. All right, so we've listed out a number of possibilities. How many Ral's Eric's do you think? I don't predict very many, but I think more than a few. I think comparing him to Tezzeret Agent of Bolas is a pretty good place to start. Well, you um, you didn't even mention the ultimate. <laughs> I honestly I think this ultimate is akin to Jace the Mind Sculptor's ultimate. If you're getting there, you've probably won the game already. Yeah, it's worth noting that this ultimate is at an average of 2.5 turns right. every time you get it. 2.5 time walks. And it happens much sooner than most other ultimates in Vintage realistically you play this guy on four you pump him to five the first turn you're ultimating him two turns later yes that could be significant if you have no other if you have no other effects access to no other broken effects no time vault and you can't go infinite and you your opponent say is not doing anything to interact with ral zarek the fact that he goes ultimate before most other planeswalkers could be highly relevant. I think that's actually a huge point. This is probably the most easily accomplished ultimate that any planeswalker we've seen that's playable in Vintage, right? You know, I haven't looked at Tezzeret's in a while. Tezzeret the Seeker 
he technically he goes ultimate faster than this because he starts at four and his ultimate's only minus five. But mm-hmm. his ultimate is also a little less obviously game breaking than this one. Yeah, having a couple right. of five fives is no slouch. Don't get me wrong, but no, it's but that's not, more like a middle ability. That's not really like a real ultimate. <laughs> <laughs> I think you are debatably correct on that one. And Ral Zarek's average of two point five extra turns is obviously pretty broken on the grand scheme of just making a couple of five fives. Yes. All right, let's get the down to it though. How many? I'm, I'm going to go first on this one since I've asked you to go first on the last few. I think that greater than zero. I think that it's not going to be so popular, especially in the first three months, to get up above even anywhere close to 10. So I think two. I feel like two on this one. I feel the same way. I mean, I hope, I don't know if our, the next couple months, the next couple months probably doesn't encompass the Vintage Championship Top 8 or prelims, but people played like Chandra in the prelims last year. This card is just miles better than that. This card is awesome. I, uh, I think two. All right, two it is. Next is Wear and Tear. This is a Boros instant, basically. Wear is one red instant destroy target artifact. Tear is white destroy target enchantment. Shatter plus Demystify, and at the exact same costs, I might point out, as opposed to Far and Away. But Steve, we have so many Shatter effects, number of which play in Vintage these days, but we don't ever really pay just one in red for our Shatters anymore. Shattering Blow notwithstanding, but that's obviously got more upside and more flexibility. What do you think about the notion, though, that this card is good against Oath and Shops and Time Vault? Disenchant, it's not so long since Disenchant saw play in Vintage, and this is probably better than Disenchant now. You think? Well, sure. Costs one less against Oath and costs the same against Workshops and has the upside of... Disenchant so flavorful. <laughs> <laughs> it is definitely I, I, that. No, this is Disenchant that can defeat a... If you fuse it, it actually defeats a, um, a Spell Snare. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> against Oath, it defeats a Spell Snare, that's for sure. Falls prey uh, to um, mental misstep, sadly. And unfortunately, unlike Far and Away, where the notion of facing two creatures is a common thing, the notion of needing to destroy an artifact and an enchantment, a la Hull Breach, is pretty unusual in Vintage. Agreed. A Hull Breach appears in Vintage Top 8s, but only as a Burning Wish target. Right, and this doesn't have that option. I mean, I, I'm a skeptic. I think, uh, you know, like you said, I mean, these effects already exist, but they exist in better forms. So, for example, the, the Dredge deck, if it wants to use Wismare, it'll play Wismare instead of Wax and over Tear because it de- helps defeat a Grapdigger's Cave. Agreed. Rather doesn't defeat it in the sense of it, it'll generate a zombie token while it destroys it. And get around so, Thorn of Amethyst. Right. So you don't even need a, uh, you know, there to be an enchantment in play, but the Wismare will help trigger zombie tokens. If the shatter half of this cost a single red, we'd be having a totally different discussion. Oh, yeah. That's that's the key point that you made earlier, right? I mean, yeah. what are the main shatter effects in this format? The main ones are Ingot Chewer and, to a much lesser extent, Nature's Claim and Shattering, Shattering Spree. Spree. Yeah. Ingot Chewer really has cornered the market, of course, for a number of reasons. Well, Nature's Claim sees a heck of a lot of play. Right. Nature's They're Claim all- and Ingot Chewer. Number the point is they all cost more. Right. And they need to toss one in order to defeat a golem. This golem is so hard to kill. Yep, and we can't play crush in vintage, really. Or crash. Or crash, sadly. So I just, I mean, I don't want to make the mistake of the shattering blow mistake, but I don't think this card is better than shattering blow. I, I expect to see no play. I think I'm with you there. I'm, I'm woe to underestimate something again, but 
when compared directly to Shattering Blow, I would choose Shattering Blow every time, I think, for this card. So I'm going to go with zero as well. Sin Collector. Creature Human Cleric. I know. It is, isn't it? One white black. When Sin Collector enters the battlefield, target opponent reveals his or her hand. You choose an instant or sorcery card from it and exile that card. Two one. I don't think there's anything in Vintage that's played or has been for a long time that costs one white black. Mm-hmm. But Tide well, Hollow, yeah, go ahead. But Tide Hollow Sculler definitely saw some play. Yep. And this card's pretty similar to Tide Hollow Sculler. What are the advantages? What are the advantages of this card over Sculler, Kevin? Advantage one is the card that you take, assuming there is one, is exiled, unlike Sculler, which eventually gives it back. Two, this card is a human, which has some synergy with Cavern of Souls that you cited earlier. Three, this card is not an artifact, which makes it inherently more robust. Yes, you made the point that the card is exiled, period. That also means that like blink effects would allow you to reuse this card, whereas that's not possible with Sculler. Ah, yes. If you were to have this creature die and bring it back in some way, blink it, return it to your hand, you'd get multiple benefits. The returning to your hand is probably the most likely in the vintage format, since bounce is such a common answer to things. Unlike Tide Hollow Sculler, if your opponent jaces this back into your hand, they're losing value over time. Yep. Also, the exile part of the removal is twofold. Number one, it doesn't just give it back the way Sculler does. But number two, it doesn't give him access to it via Snapcaster Mage or Yawgmoth's will. Right. So if you take their Ancestral Recall, barring Cunning Wish, which she's pretty much no play, they're not going to get it back. It's gone. Yep. What are the disadvantages then of this part over itself? Well, first and foremost, the mana cost, which is the difference between two and three, is just enormous in Vintage. At two, you can, in the properly constructed mana base, actually occasionally get this card in play on turn one, that being Tide Hollow Sculler. That is going to be very rare for Sin Collector, and that makes a big difference when you're trying to fight cards in hand like Ancestral Recall. The odds of you getting an Ancestral with a Sin Collector are dramatically reduced. This card also has one fewer toughness, which is pretty rarely relevant. difference between two and one toughness in Vintage is almost nil. But in the world of, say, Deathrite Shaman and Goblin Welder, it's not impossible that you're going to be bummed out by that. Yeah, he's got a smaller butt. <laughs> in fact, Deathrite Shaman probably has changed the value of 2-1 versus 2-2 more than I'm giving it credit for at the moment. On the balance, though, what do you think? Is this a better card than Sculler? No. When push comes to shove, I really think that the converted mana cost is the deal breaker here. For the reason you would play such a card, which is definitely the hand disruption, I just can't abide paying three times more than a duress or a thought sees. With Tide Hollow Sculler, there were other considerations. Paying one white for a 2-2, in addition to that, had a little bit more value, I think. Paying two mana for a 2-1 is completely overpaying for the value. Well, I think your analysis is completely reasonable. But, and this reminds me of the whole power discussion, power is always determined in the context. And in the context of Vintage, where Cavern of Souls is increasingly important, I think this card is actually better. I think it's better because both because this is a human and because Sculler is not. <laughs> so the the fact that this can be easily played, human cleric off of off a cavern matters. But the fact that Tidehaller Sculler, Tidehallow Sculler, can't. It's an artifact creature zombie. Pretty makes it pretty much makes it useless. And and it's a pretty important tool for green X X white black decks, repeat decks, 
I think I hear your point about efficiency mattering, but efficiency matters because you want to be able to, to fight through counter magic or to play like a duress effect in the speller in the same turn. If you can use the cavern to resolve this card, then you need not have all those other things. It kind of is like the abrupt decay point, right? Mm. Yes, I see your point exactly. That's that's pretty fair. I see what you're getting at there. If you consider this in, as something of an uncounterable mid-game play, after yeah. you've done some other things to put them under pressure or disrupt them, then I can see where you're going with that. It has a fair bit of value. Yeah, and it's not just that you're disrupting them, but you're taking their best card, their Tinker, the Yawgmoth's Will, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think this card is very good. I mean, I, I, I think I think it's better than Scholar. That's in, in, in that way. I think that's the answer to the question I asked you. Mm-hmm. I think it's a better card than Scholar in the current vintage format. There is one other significant dr- uh, drawback to this versus Scholar, and that is it has much less utility versus workshops. Yep. Scholar can come into play under Lodestone Golem and Thorn, whereas this Sin Collector can only come in under Thorn. And Sculler gets to take a card against workshops, which Sin Collector never will, or at least rarely will in the case of Dismember. That's a very good point. There is one other subtle advantage, though. If you have Cavern of Souls, this is resolving through Chalice of Three. Mm, yep. And that does happen every once in a while, it's especially depending on the construction of the rest of your deck. If you have major threats at three mana that they might be saving a Chalice for, say, what's a good example? Energy Flux, perhaps. Trigon Predator. Trigon Predator. Good. Also, this card plays pretty well with Deathrite Shaman, and in that sense, you could pretty reliably play it on two the way that you would play a Sculler on two. You could cast this on turn two after turn one Deathrite Shaman and including a Cavern of Souls, so you could have the best of all possible worlds in that regard. I wonder if we're moving to like a five-color beat stack where you Cavern of Souls is your core mana, but then you use City of Brass and things like that. I think it's... I think we're almost there, in fact, because I would consider the bug or junk aggro decks that are materializing these days to be basically that. Swap out one or two creatures, put in some Notion Thief, you could have an almost entirely human mana base, including this card, and you effectively got what you're describing. People play with Mayor of Averbrook in in, (laughs) in the top eights right now. Why not this, right? (laughs) Well, I was, yes, I was very surprised to see the appearance of Mayor of Averbrook, but he is only two mana, human advisor werewolf. (laughs) We might not be giving the advisor creature type its due credit. (laughs) <laughs> it does include such luminaries as cartel aristocrats and a whole bunch of creatures from portal three kingdoms they love they love their advisors there all the chinese ancient chinese advisors <laughs> that's right but seriously though gadok teague is the one i was thinking of he is probably possibly the best vintage advisor <laughs> <laughs> and if no one has the Twitter handle Vintage Advisor, you can have that one uh, free of charge. <laughs> anyway, let's put our money where our mouth is, as I like to say. Sin Collector, I'm going to make you go first on this one because this one is all your idea here. Okay, um, I'm going to say two. Two. Wow, potent. Pretty bold. I do not share your boldness on this card. I'm going to go with zero. I, I knew you'd do that. <laughs> hey, what are you going to do? I just think that, I think that this human things is on the rise, and I think this card is going to show up as a one or two of in that deck. I think that is a very fair point, and it, all of you aspiring or new vintage players out there, maybe you don't get to play that often, maybe you're building your collection, I would say if you don't have your Cavern of Souls yet, this is probably a good time, because that card's only going to get better in vintage. Yeah, this card really powers up Cavern. In this and Notion Thief. Yep. <laughs> 
And that's not, this is not the end of that comment. Let's move on to a very interesting one. Voice of Resurgence. Creature Elemental. Green White. Whenever an opponent casts a spell during your turn, or when Voice of Resurgence dies, put a green and white elemental creature token onto the battlefield with this creature's power and toughness are equal to the number of creatures you control, 2-2. We've already mentioned Gadok Teague. Green, white, 2-2s are already a common occurrence in the format, relatively speaking. you think this effect is worth playing over a Gadok Teague? Well, it depends. I mean, this card doesn't shut down your opponent's spells, but neither does Gadok Teague. Not I mean, completely, Gadok Teague, no. Gadok Teague only turns off Gush and Force, and Misdirection, and Mindbreak Trap. This card this card actually seems really good against something like Landstill. I mean, if, even if they bolt it, you get a creature back, so it's total value. And it triggers off just any reason for its own death, meaning you chump blocked in combat, they blocked in combat. Yep. So it has extra value once it's in play against decks that aren't even going to be playing spells on your turn. It has relevance against workshops in combat. It's worth thinking about like what the numbers mean. So just go through some numbers and see how big this can get. Well, sure. Let's say you're playing a junk-based aggro deck, the likes of which you alluded to earlier. You're going to have a turn one creature, almost certainly. Maybe a Deathrite Shaman, maybe a... Familiar. There you go. Or that militant creature that we talked about. Dryad militant, good point. So you're going to have your one drop. You're going to get in for a couple of damage. You're going to play your two drop on turn two. That maybe this card, maybe Tarmogoyf, maybe Thalia, for example. On turn three, you play a third creature, possibly a fourth. And this guy is one of them, let's say. You're fronting, say, five to seven damage, depending on the creature configuration. And your opponent is struggling to stay alive at this point. It could be that all of your creatures are in the 2x category. You might have a Militant and a Thalia and this creature. If they're able to fight back, either with their own creatures, you can be more aggressive attacking into them with this card. Let's say they have a Tarmogoyf. You can be more comfortable swinging in with this card. Or if they're fighting back and on a removal front... They can't effectively remove this card. They're going to have to target something else. Right. And every time they do, the, the, this will grow. The, the, the board state will grow. This card is not legendary, like Gadok Teague is, so there's no problem putting all four into oh, a deck. Boy. Oh, boy. And the second one that you play and they remove starts to become pretty hairy. Because if you can keep the three creatures on the board, the ones that replace the death of this one are bigger than this. And that's to say nothing for the fact that they may have played an instant in combat. You're going to force a number of aggro control or control players to play their removal on their main phase, lest they get even more blown out. Yes, and if they counter two spells, you get two guys yeah. in business. I don't know. I think this scenario is has some valid, optimal results, but I have a feeling that a lot of that is just magical Christmas land. <laughs> in a lot of other cases, you're going to... You're, you may be... Let's say the worst case scenario is that they wipe your board and you're left with a 1-1 that's a token. Obviously, that's not very good in Vintage, but you know what? If they wiped your board and you have one left over, it's better than nothing. It's yes. it's probably from an effect that they would have been able to play if you had Gadok Teague in play anyway. Right. A Pyroclasm, for example, the lesser played balance, something like that. Yep. So maybe this is doing all the work that you want Gadok Teague to do in certain matchups. But I am of the opinion that if you're playing a Green X Beats deck in Vintage, generally speaking, you would much prefer to have 
the creatures that prevent things from happening. Like Anaktig. Like Anaktig, then the Anthalia. This doesn't actually prevent something from happening. And, and the real bummer of that is if your opponent has an answer to the combat that would kill them and then they win on their turn, this card has not had really any value. What are those cards that used to say something like, draw three cards unless your opponent takes six damage? <laughs> Browbeat is the obvious yeah. example. The fundamental flaw with those cards is you give your opponent the choice, so they always choose the situ- situationally best one. Mm-hmm. This card has the same flaw, which is that you know they can either counter your spell or they can give you a 2-2 or a 3-3 or a 4-4. Mm-hmm. They'll, do, they'll do the one that's that's least harmful to them. And it, a card like Gadokti doesn't give them a choice. It gives them the choice that they can play cards that cost less than 4, but they can't cast force. So, I mean, it's hard to say. You're not constricting your options, their options. You're just altering the value of them. Exactly. And that's much worse in Vintage. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. Yes, ultimately, the only time I would opt for this card over Gadokti is if I was in clearly a very creature-heavy heavy metagame. Yeah. At which point, you're probably going to opt for something else over Voice of Resurgence. But I don't want to downplay the value this guy has. You can't just bolt this guy and kill it. In fact, if you bolt it, not, <laughs> you actually get two tokens, right? Um, on your turn, if you do that, yes. Yeah. You get two tokens. If they which do it on insane. their turn, they, you still get one, yes. Right. That's insane. So. Yeah, a very good point. This card also plays well with plenty of other things, a la Standstill or Mystic Remora. If you can cause your opponent to hesitate playing a spell in Vintage, that's not so difficult to capitalize on. Also, let's not forget that if you counter the spell that they played, you still get the creature. Yes. They don't get the spell. So any kind of, say, Bant Aggro deck that's going to play perhaps more counter spells than than normal gets extra benefit out of this. If you wanted to, say, max out on a few creatures and Mystic Remora, Mental Misstep, Misdirection, that kind of thing, you're going to get lots more benefit out of this card. That's right. I really like the design of the card. So do I. This is the kind of thing that otherwise simply beatdown creatures need to have to be playable in Vintage. I think it's a serious consideration for beatdown decks, but I I don't I wouldn't predict it's going to actually appear in top eight decks. Okay. I'm with you. I think that it is not going to appear in top eights, but it's one another one to keep in the notebook for possible future applications. Definitely. Let's talk about Skylasher. Creature Insect. One green. Flash. Skylasher can't be countered. Reach. Protection from blue. 2-2. Two, two. Can you hate blue anymore <laughs> in a grizzly bear body? Well, this is the anti-Delver card. In it's, so many ways. In so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I this mean, card hates Delver in three or four unique ways. <laughs> Just incredible. Yeah, so the question is, is it worth <laughs> hating Delver so much in a, with a grizzly bear in Vintage? Maybe not vintage, but I definitely think this card is playable in Legacy. Um, at, at least in theory, I mean, this, like, for all those reasons, can't be countered blue. This thing does so many things. It's like, it, I can't even, this is kind of like an unglued card. I mean, it's got so many. <laughs> so there have been a number of, there's a bit this niche in Beats decks at this casting cost and at this basically empowered toughness that, that has some of these features. But the two that have, have actually been bandied about are Thornwheeled Archer and, and I think, uh, Ambush Viper. Because you could kill like a, you know, some really big creatures. Like you could definitely trade with a golem. You know, um, they both have death touch. You could even, in some cases, trade with a uh, a tinker target. Really? It doesn't have death touch. But I think this is better than the other one. I mean, this thing not being countered. This also is very good against Jace. 
Definitely. Unfortunately, well, depending on whose side you're on, it's usually not going to kill Jace on the first swing. But I will tell you that if you're the sort of deck playing Grizzly Bears, then you're the sort of deck that's pressuring Jace. And that deck leads to situations where Jace will more often come down and use his unsummon. Yes. So the surprise Skylasher will probably get more than its share of opportunities right. to take him down. And if you have like a Noble Hierarch, this card can then just immediately kill Jace. Ah, that's true. Noble Hierarch and Kosali Pride Mage are going to turn this card into a Jace killer also. And that wouldn't be an unusual con- combination for a beats deck either. You know, I just don't think it's... The, the reason I, the reason I, I understand, I know where you're going to go with this, but the reason I think this card just can't be immediately dismissed is because of the, the combination of characteristics. You know, the, you just don't see a creature with all four of these characteristics at once. This is, I mean, this thing is, is grizzly out with, with four of different abilities. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty unprecedented. You're right about that, and it's a valid point. And there are certain vintage creatures that it just immediately trumps. Vendillion Click, Notion Thief... Trinket Mage. Ophidian. Ophidian. Well, he doesn't see play. <laughs> I know, uh, but still. <laughs> like, this guy's like a mini Morphling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he blocks Delver and Trigon Predator for days. If Megas Elemental. <laughs> yeah. So in the it, against Rug Delver, for example, in Vintage, he blocks and just continues blocking and even kills Delver, but he blocks Trigon. I mean, that's two-thirds of their creature base almost. Yes. The only thing that doesn't that doesn't uh, care about this card is, is Tarmogoyf, of course. And Bolt. Well, yes, naturally. If there was more blue removal for creatures in Vintage, which there could be at some point in the future, but if it was more ubiquitous, I would say this card goes up in value. As it stands, he is actually, and humorously, a funny answer to Far and Away. (laughs) We could be moving to a point where Flash creatures have more say in the average vintage game. It's amazing how many creatures with Flash there are in this set that are useful. Interesting. Well, we've gone through so many creatures in a row for Beats decks. Do you think this supplants anything out there in vintage today? I think that this could easily see a top eight, vintage top eight, in that in that slot of um, um, well, there's also Scrib Ranger that I didn't even mention. It's used sometimes with Nikaeus in blue, in in green, white, black um, beat stacks. Interesting. That, uh, we've seen card- we've seen Mayor of Everbrook. We've seen Blind Obedience. I'm with you that it's it was not out of the realm of possibility, but I've got to believe that that appearance that you're referring to would be the one and only. Yeah, I'm not going to make a prediction on this. That it will, I mean, I'll make the prediction zero, but I think it's definitely, again, in that, that the binder of consideration. Yeah, I agree. In the sense that the right creature at the right time can do the right thing in the right tournament, this has that possibility, just like Mayer did. We'll see. Sadly, no insect tribal decks anytime soon. <laughs> Although, the higher irony would be playing this creature in a Rug Delver deck. <laughs> yeah. Since Delver and this are both uh, insects, but not when they're on the stack, Delvers aren't. Yes. But it remains to be seen. I think this card could certainly see play in Legacy. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a pretty good Maverick answer to Delver. Interesting. Yep. Definitely could. And factor in a Mother of Runes to survive the, the, red. the red removal, and you might be onto something. All right, let's go to Uncovered Clues. Last but not least. Last but not least. Sorcery 2 Blue. Look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal up to two instant and or sorcery cards from among them 
and put the revealed cards into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. I think Matthew Sperling's metaphor is useful for evaluating this card. The floor and ceiling, sure. So what's the what's the what's the ceiling, Kevin? The ceiling is you're going to draw the best two instants and or sorceries in the top four cards of your library. You're going to put two cards in your hand. Mm-hmm. Divination, okay. but for higher quality average cards, yep. in theory. What's the floor? The floor is do nothing. The floor is this card is the goggles. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you're not even going to want to consider this card unless you're playing a deck that is 60, 70, 80% spells, which is really only possible in Eternal to have a very good deck. I think that's a very important point. Is your, your, your deck construction is severely hampered to try and maximize it. Mm-hmm. But as three-mana divination clones go... This one seems pretty darn good if you can construct such a deck. It's yeah, I, the, 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 this is not worse than divination. Let's just be clear about that. You get to see four cards, so it's choosing the best two of four. The, in the best case scenario, you cast a spell. Your top four cards are all instants and sorceries, and you get to choose the two best. <laughs> so it's like ancestral recall, time walk, <laughs> force of will, <laughs> and fluster storm, or something like that. Choose the two that you want. Mm-hmm. This is potentially much better than divination. The other card that's uh, obvious comparison is a forbidden outcome because it's another card that for three mana can net a card a pretty fair comparison now forbidden alchemy being an instant really has a leg up on anything like this card well meditate is an instant but that has a severe drawback <laughs> yeah i see your point exactly the the comparison that i thought of after divination of course was actually uh, a card that came out in the original ravnica compulsive research that card, I believe Brian DeMars tried to make that work in Vintage at one point. Yeah, Compulsive Research was a card that Owen Turtenwald used in a, uh, I think it's like Platinum Angel Control deck at the, one of the old Star City games. Compulsive Research obviously has a lot in common here, and I think it's pretty clearly better than Divination, and, but it doesn't have nearly the limitation on deck construction that this card requires. Yes. And the only thing I can... I can't shake the feeling that if you were going to construct a deck that had such a preponderance of instants and sorceries that you would simply use a different card in this spot. Yeah, and my old model blue control deck. <laughs> yeah, but I'm thinking more along the lines of the kind of elusive red-blue combo deck that never really fully materializes. Pyromancer Ascension or Goblin Electromancer, the kind of deck that we speculate about so often in spoiler discussions yeah. like this, but never really comes to the fore. Yeah, but I think the, the thing that makes this different from Compulsive Research and Divination, again, is that you get to see four cards. Which is, so it's got this impulse-like quality to it, like alchemy. Well, and it's something we've covered again and again on the differentiating between Ponder, Preordain, and Brainstorm, too. So I don't want to dismiss that aspect. But I think it's more like strategic planning than it is. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair comparison as well. Strategic planning's had its day, of course, in the sun. It li- had literally a day. <laughs> <laughs> that was a cool day, though. I'll give you that. <laughs> I don't think this card can make it. I think it's it's one of those funny paradoxes where if there's a deck this goes in, there's a better card than this. Yep. I'm predicting zero. The ceiling, the ceiling is very high, but the, the floor is very low. <laughs> yeah. Very low. I'm predicting zero copies. What do you say? I'm with you. But it's, 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 a, it's a useful card from the analytic perspective to think about, you know, what, what, are, what do these sorts of things mean for deck construction? How do they constrain desi- deck design? And what sort of conditions, you know, how, do these, how does this compare with other cards? You know, it just helps, always, always brings these, these issues into sharp relief. It's useful to talk about. 
seems like that's something of a recurring theme here. This set has introduced lots of interesting design elements. Yes, they're maybe good, but not quite good enough. Right. Steve, we've discussed 12 cards here for Dragon's Maze, and between the two of them, we've predicted appearances for five of them. Unfortunately, in one of those cases, one of us also predicted zero appearances, so we might be... The over-under, I think, is at four of these cards making an impact on Vintage, at least in the short term. We might be overly generous in that respect, too. Well, it's true. Some of these predictions are pretty darn low. One, two, three appearances. What's your opinion of this set overall for Vintage, especially vis-a-vis recent sets? Well, it's hard to say whether this is a low point or or return to average. I think that this is probably a low point. I mean, you can point to, like, Mirrodin to Innisrod as, you know, a, a series of sets with a lot of great vintage cards. But I just think we're in a block that's bad for vintage, not dissimilar to the first Ravnica block, which, although it had some real great all-stars, was not really that strong. And this this block seems a lot weaker than the original Ravnica block. So I think that this is um, not a return to form, but um, a, a, an outlier. And there's a number of reasons for that. I think the emphasis on gold cards is a, is a makes it less likely that these cards will see play in vintage. The, um, the various guilds, not only are the guilds lim- not likely to see you know weak in vintage, but the um, mechanics that come out of the guilds are are pretty awful for for vintage play. What are your thoughts? You are obviously spot on with your various points there. I think that you've raised an interesting point, which I didn't consider when I asked you the question, and that is: is this what's normal for magic? Is this normative? Yes, I thought that was what you were you meant by the question. Well, it wasn't what I mean. I didn't have a preconceived answer going in, so. I really enjoyed what you came up with there. I I think the goldness of Ravnica Block is probably the most pervasive factor in the overall value of the set, the block, for Vintage. So many of these cards are stymied in their efficacy in Vintage because of their mana costs being spread yep. across multiple colors. We've been a little surprised by some of the charms appearances, for example, Demir Charm. Yeah. But not, it's not that surprising. It's a blue charm. You know, if it does yeah. two things and it's blue and it costs two <laughs> mana, it's going to have applications. Well, remind our, our listeners why we thought we were, why we were surprised. By well, in the case of Demir Charm, it, the modes, let, I'll just review. Counter target sorcery spell, destroy target creature with power two or less, look at the top three cards of target player's library, put one back and the rest in the player's graveyard. Each one of those modes is not just weak in vintage, but fundamentally, it, it, it just doesn't play right in the format. Counter-target sorcery is weak because yeah, sor- sorceries are just not critical to even the decks that play sorceries. Joke. It's a joke. The Demir charm <laughs> is terrible. And it's, it's, destroying it's, a creature with power two or less has some <laughs> targets, but it completely fails to destroy creatures in the creature-heavy decks. This is Demir. Demir is the house of power in Vintage. It's a joke. To, I mean... <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that the Demir Charm needs to be one mode Tinker, one mode Yawgmoth's Will, one mode Ancestral Recall, but this is terrible. You're, you're talking about the old money of magic when you talk about blue and black. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is the blue blood. That's right. 
Could Mirror Charm is worse than Is It Charm? I didn't think that could be possible. Is It Charm is actually useful. That is, I think, representative of what I'm just talking about is while combining colors is a inherently inherently a way to get power out of magic cards, it is also the simple fact is, and we've covered this in a number of different ways and contexts, is that requiring different colors of mana goes against the tendencies of the vintage format. That's right. That's right. I mean, gold cards are more expensive than other spells at the same converted mana cost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meddling Mage effectively costs two and a half mana in vintage. And yep. the reason why that is is a whole long discussion about how mana bases are generally constructed. But the simple fact is, is that Moxon don't contribute very well to gold cards. Right. So I think that... In one sense, I would say you could describe this as a, as normative, and in one sense, you could I could say you could describe it as a valley in terms of vintage playables. Right. Because I think factoring in the flexibility of mana costs into the power, this set and this block actually features many vintage and eternal playable cards. The charms as a whole have lots of relevance. It, having multiple modes, look, look at Shattering Blow, which is not a charm, but it, it, it functions like one, in a sense, combining two effects that have, haven't exactly existed that way before. These are the kind of things that are useful in Vintage, That's right. which has really emphasized utility in the last couple of years from a deck construction standpoint. But it's counteracted by the goldness of so many things. Hybrid cards, on the other hand, are awesome for Vintage, and we don't have quite so many of those that are quite as useful as we did say in Lorwyn Block. But Lorwyn Block featured the, I mean, a lot of creatures at at hybrid that didn't really make a splash. Guild mages, for example, because activated abilities are tough to maximize in Vintage. All these things I think are conspiring to say that I think we've got about the right amount of vintage playables out of a set that featured these themes. Right. The one saving grace I think for this entire set was the hybrid man. Yeah. Because we got you got Deathrite Shaman out of it, you know, and and that does that's not as constrained as much. Although it still is constrained because you got to have multiple, you got to have both black and green to really get maximum effect out of it. But right. it's still it's still it's still the case that this emphasis on guilds and creatures and creature based mechanics is, is stifling for vintage. At the same time, we're comparing it to high points such as Mirrodin and New Phyrexia, for example, where the mechanics of those sets, artifacts and, and being able to skirt mana costs through Phyrexian mana, those things play directly into Vintage's strengths. So it's not really fair to compare this as a low point to something that was so mechanically tied to Vintage. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, while that's tr- that's fair to say, I'm, I don't think that, like, I'm not just talking about Mirrod. I mean, the whole the Innistrad block was very useful for Vintage. And every set in, every set in Innistrad had something good. Innistrad had Laboratory Maniac, Delver, Snap Caster Mage, uh, Dark Ascension had Grafdigger's Cage, Thalia, Dark Ascension and Avacyn Restored had something, I'm sure. It had a Gristle Brand and and uh, a number of Miracle cards. It's a very interesting interesting block. Cavern of Souls, yeah. Cavern of Souls. Those are, there are a lot of good examples in there that do not function because they dovetail so nicely with existing vintage mechanics and, and strategies. There are things in there that are uniquely new, like Cavern of Souls, for example. We didn't right. predict the popularity of Cavern of Souls accurately, and that's just going to happen sometimes with brand new effects that shape the format in a different direction. So from that standpoint, I think I see your point. The, this Ravnica block is not bringing so many things that Innistrad block brought 
in quite the same way. There are still some splashy things in, in, in uh, Ravnica block, though. Look at Enter the Infinite. I don't think the jury's out on that one. That's right. Right. And Whispering Madness, Thespian Stage, those are some unique things, or at least powerful alterations of existing things that they may, may not have had their day yet. That's true. Well, I love these kind of set reviews. I can't wait to do the report card on Dragon's Maze. I know I started to say that every time, but it really is true. It's so much fun to look back and see how we felt on things and how they really shake out. Uh, I, I'm glad that uh, we're here because I'm looking forward to the next block. What is it going to be, by the way? We've got a Greek-themed block coming up, Theros, which we don't know too much about, but it's been announced with that title and a couple of pictures. The the codename was Friends, Romans, Countrymen. Yeah. I wonder how many uh, 300 tie-ins there will be in this block. <laughs> well, I expect, I expect this set to be to be this next block to be just as good and hopefully better. It, you know, it is somewhat baseless speculation on my part, but there appears to be a deity theme in such a block. Awesome. That, that yeah, that can only I think, in my opinion, translate into at least a few very powerful effects. Last time we had at least pseudo deity type effects in magic was in Rise of the Eldrazi. And we all know how that impacted Eternal Magic down to its core. Yeah. So we may be in for another Emrakul-level shakeup of things in Eternal Magic. One can hope. It could be fun. Well, our question for this episode, as you can probably all anticipate, is what Dragon's Maze card will see the most play in Vintage and why? We want to hear from our listeners on this one on Twitter and or via email. Let us know what you expect. And what do you think is the best card from Dragon's Maze? Oh, I like the distinction you just raised there. And for those of you who may not appreciate what we're getting at there, not everyone's, not every card sees play in quantity equal to its quality necessarily. So give us an answer to either or both questions. With that, thank you for listening to episode 24 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Read it, it's not safe protective game! <laughs> <laughs>